You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 455. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 6th of January, 2021. In today's episode, British scientists find a carbon-free way of creating jet fuel. Safety inspectors list the probable causes for a Shanghai Airline 737 landing on the wrong runway in South Korea. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, 101 seconds. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 455 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins. New York City! And you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news, covering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA. And joining me from her lakeside studio in South... She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so nice to see you gentlemen this evening. Looking forward to a great show. It's good to be back. Excellent. And... Also joining us from a studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and hi, Steph. Lovely to be back on board in this new year. Great to have everyone back together now. We're going to be joined by Miami Rick at some point, we're hoping. Uh, But until he does... Let's go ahead and start covering the news. Stand by for news. All right. Uh, an Air Sangha de Havilland DHC 6300 registration Papa 2 Alpha Sierra Mike performing a flight from Wobagan to back, back, Papua New Guinea with seven passengers and two crew was accelerating for takeoff from Wobagan's runway 12 when the aircraft began to veer right off the runway, prompting the crew to reject takeoff. The aircraft went over a drain. The nose gear collapsed, came to a stop to a, a position uh, with coordinates that I'm not going to give you because it really doesn't matter. Uh, one passenger received minor injuries. The aircraft sustained substan- substantial damage to the nose gear, the cockpit forward bulkhead, left propeller, and left wing. We talked about this. I, was it last show, uh, Liz, that we covered this one? 
I believe it, it was two shows ago. Two shows I ago. Remember talking about it? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, a twin otter, um, and basically all it said was that the thing just veered off the runway and, and crashed, and there was a passenger injured. I believe a child. Um, and uh, so now we have a little bit more information about this, although it's not really conclusive exactly why it ended up veering off the runway, but it has a little bit more information than uh, we we had previously. Um, so I don't know if you guys had a chance to take a look at this or not. Mm, I'm reading through it. The only thing that comes to mind, just knowing a little bit about Twin Otter Systems, wondering about um, hydraulics for the um, nose gear steering. Uh-huh. Potentially, there have been a number of uh, incidences with incidents with twin otters in the past, where there have been um, lack of appropriate hydraulic pressure and inability to steer the nose gear using the tiller. Okay, I I noticed that it said that uh, when it started to veer, the um, pilot command started using differential Asymmetric. thrust. Yeah. yeah, differential thrust. Is that, is that a so, standard um, thing to do on a twin otter, or shouldn't need? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a multi-engine aircraft, so you can use that to help maintain directional control, but it's not something that you should need to do on a standard takeoff. Yeah. I'm always a bit power. worried about the having to resort to that because, of course, all your takeoff calculations are based on a power setting. Mm-hmm. And if you suddenly reduce power on one engine, you're not going to have the same amount of energy when you get uh, try to get airborne. Yeah. I would think if it's not tracking straight down the runway for one reason or another with symmetric thrust, you'd probably want to abort and figure out why. Right. Uh, I noticed that they make a point of stating that he did his 180, and as he sort of turned out of it, uh, he put went straight into the takeoff, applied full power. Hmm. And um, I've seen people do that and come a bit of a <laughs> cropper. So... <laughs> So you also um, need that hydraulic for the for brakes as well, same hydraulic system. So oh yeah, mm-hmm. but I mean uh, the hydraulic systems work at idle power, so he hopefully would have noticed me if he. If hopefully, he I mean I, I don't problem. know. I'm just I'm just taking a guess here. So sure, it's just that uh, I've seen people just try and get the power on just a tiny bit too quick. And uh, got it on a little unevenly, or when before the aircraft was perfectly straight, and then ended up in a bit of a, a wiggle down the runway while they try and sort everything out. Which, just for the sake of a few seconds, just to make sure you got the nose was straight, you're on the middle of the runway, you're steady and pointing down the runway. Um, I don't know if that's uh, anything to do with this, but it's just perhaps worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think we still need more information, perhaps. Yeah, we have a little bit more information, but not conclusive information yet, I guess. All right. Uh, I don't suppose there's much of a of a um, a little recorder in this airplane, is there? So, uh, um, depends. We won't find out too much, will we? I don't know. To be honest, depends on the operator and the regulations. And <laughs> what was that, oh, Nick? What too. were you doing? <laughs> Peering over the top of... You had to see me before, trying to peer over the little news logo. Oh, okay. (laughs) I guess now that I've stopped sharing the screen, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, so I was saying, uh, anything else to add, uh, Steph, uh, regarding Uh, this? No, but I'm going to go read through the uh, hydraulic system of the Twin Otter now. Oh, okay. Well, it's not the only Twin Otter that we have in today's show. No, I see that this is the uh, the Twin Otter... uh, 
The Twin Otter Show. Show. Or the Twatter Show. Um, item B, um, report Shanghai 737-800 registration Bravo 1949 performing flight 829 from Shanghai Pudong uh, Airport in China to Pusan uh, in South Korea with 154 passengers and eight crew. I probably said all those wrong. Uh, was on a circling approach to runway 18 right in a right-hand pattern cleared to land on runway 18 right, but touched down on runway 18 left. The aircraft rolled out without incident and taxied to the apron. Now, I'm thinking to myself, hey, at least they landed at the right airport. You know, you got to <laughs> give them that much. Yeah, Exactly. I'm a glass half full guy. <laughs> um, so let's see the report. Let's see. When did this happen? It happened on the September 7th of 2019. Um, so this is, I guess, the final report. Uh, the flight, the report concludes the probable causes of the occurrence rated a quasi accident where the flight crew failed to identify runway 18 right during approach and landed and landing and landed on runway 18 left instead. Uh, yeah. Um, factors were a narrow turn to final causing to complete the turn to runway 18 right in time. Uh, pappies of runway 18 left were misidentified as glide path indication for runway 18 right. Ooh, that's a problem. And lack of communication between the captain and first officer. Uh, big problem. The aircraft carried three flight crew. The commander, 36 years old, 10,322 flight hours total. A lot of time. Um, let's see. He was the pilot monitoring, occupying the left-hand seat. An augmenting captain. No data provided. And the first officer, 27. Uh, commercial pilot license, 3,331 hours total. Was the pilot flying. The ARAIB reported that the aircraft had performed a VOR DME Alpha approach to uh, runways 18 left and 18 right and joined a right downwind for runway 18 right, but flew a tighter downwind than usual. A beam of the runway, the runway was identified. The aircraft was handed to tower and cleared to land on 18 right, about one and a half nautical miles from the runway threshold. The aircraft began the base turn, crossed the extended center line of 18 right in the base turn descending through about 700 feet AGL, about 0.8 nautical miles from the threshold, lined up with 18 left, touched down on runway 18 left. Um, let's see, the captain reported in their base turn, the aircraft encountered wake turbulence uh, by a preceding aircraft. Hence, he focused on controlling the attitude of the swaying aircraft. He was not aware that they had crossed the extended runway center line of runway 18 right and were, in fact, aligning with runway 18 left. Tower instructed the aircraft to go around just one second prior to touchdown. Yeah, it's a little late. Um, there's a ground track here. Let me see if I can share the screen so everybody can see this uh, ground track. The yellow is um, the... Uh, hang on. The yellow track here in the picture is what a typical pattern should look like for landing on 18 right coming in on the VOR DME alpha approach. And the green is the track that this particular flight uh, flew. And uh, so a little bit tight and uh, you know, it happens not good, but it happens. Let's see. What else do you want to say about that? Um, 700 feet at 0.8 of a mile. It seems a bit high. That and is normally about steep. 300 feet a mile. 
would be a three-degree glide path. So uh, he's less than a mile, and he's more than 600 feet high. So Pretty steep. he's more than twice as high as he would normally be, yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one of the factors they said here was that there is high terrain just to the north, and perhaps you know, keeping that in mind, the captain felt like he had to fly, or no, I'm sorry, the first officer was flying. I had to um, fly it. Is that right? See, I'm already questioning myself. Yeah, the first officer was flying. Um, You know, probably saw the terrain and thought, I I need to get, you know, turn really tightly so I don't get too close to the terrain and perhaps could have extended the final a little bit longer. And and looking at that depicted ground track, it certainly looks like that uh, he he did cut it a little bit tight. And uh, so it was high and tight there for the... uh, turn to final although he's he's actually done the first half of the turn very neatly it's 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 a nice tight turn mm-hmm. uh obviously um if he'd repeated that in the second half he'd have just about been perfect but for some reason on the latter um 20 or 30 degrees he seems to have eased off his rate of turn almost like he was trying to get across to that um uh wrong runway Yep. Um, so if he just kept that turn rate on, I think he probably would have been beautifully lined up for the correct runway. Yep. I'm not quite sure um, why he pitched. And, I mean, they are quite close. It's not like they're miles apart. So looking <laughs> down one runway, you should easily be able to see the lights and the pappies of the other runway. I'm still trying to work out in my mind why they had a visual confusion there. I don't know. What time was it? It was, um, was it at night? I don't recall. I keep rereading through this and I can't seem to like keep any of the details about it straight. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. Maybe you have COVID too. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) No, you could I don't think it says the time, does it? Uh, no, I don't think it does. Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting because usually, usually, uh, Simon makes a point of including that in, the narratives and the it'd be mm-hmm. nice to know the wind as well. Mm-hmm. If we had a tightening or a slackening wind. The only thing that I saw in this narrative that uh, indicated anything that was kind of unusual um, outside of what the crew was doing was the fact that they encountered some wake turbulence and maybe that was just enough to throw them off and distract them. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Shouldn't have been. I mean, no, reasonably common and you can't land on the wrong way run, every time you get work turbulence land on the wrong runway yeah it'd be a lot of people um, landing on the wrong wrong runways exactly yeah hmm. uh, if there was an aircraft in front wouldn't they have seen the runway he landed on and gone for the same one unless yeah. he'd been cleared for the uh, uh the left i don't know maybe that's part of the issue too Maybe they were cleared to different runways. <laughs> Possibly. And he saw the one in mm-hmm. front. Yeah. Oh, that must be the right one. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems like if you were to superimpose those tracks, the only issue was he was tight in and then turned early and yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Kind of just line, ended yeah. up lining up better for the uh, 1-8 left. I don't know if you do the same, Jeff. We were taught to start our what clocks when we go beam the end of the runway on the downwind leg. And then uh, basically, if you're at 1,500 feet, I think the timing is like 45 seconds, and then yeah. you start a turn, and then you 
add or subtract every second for every nod of headwind or tailwind you've got so you correct for it but uh, mm -hmm. it sounds looks like he started the turn very shortly after he passed the end of the runway and didn't apply any uh, factor there to give him a chance to get onto the extended center line rather mm -hmm. than i mean it looks like a good fighter pilot circuit quite honestly yeah no wonder he landed on the wrong run or jump pilot <laughs> all right now now we know Hi, Rick. hey look hey, at everybody hey. sorry hey. yeah Sorry, I uh, joined a little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. <laughs> oh, man. these It's just it's like clockwork. You'd go to turn your computer on, and then all of a sudden there's all these updates, and then uh, I couldn't use the Motu, so I had to revert back to my uh, to my Samsung mic, and it's oh, just, no. a, you know, one oh, of those man. cool Charlie well, you know, Foxtrot situations. Technology is wonderful, isn't it? When oh, it yeah, works. Love it. That's exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're glad you were able to join us. Uh, we were just uh, discussing this second uh, item in the news, uh, Rick, regarding this uh, 737 at Pusan. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Uh, so apparently that airport uh, and uh, Chinese airlines don't get along too well. Um, um, I've flown to that airport only once and only to the north. Um, uh, the, uh, I don't believe uh, they have an ILS to the south. And actually, uh, the Chinese lost a 76-200 on a circle-to-land maneuver into that very airport. Uh, I think it was the first hull loss of a 76-200 uh, in that side of the world. Um, it's a little tricky, but uh, yeah, I saw that. Uh, quite the interesting situation there. Okay. Hmm. Wow. I didn't realize they uh, had lost an airplane there um, during, yeah, on that circle I think it approach. was a China Airlines 129, uh, the flight number. But it was a very, very similar situation with a circle to land maneuver. Uh, it's it's a really straightforward uh, approach if you land in the north because it's got ILSs. Yeah, uh, it's got an ILS. But to to the south, um, anytime you do a circle to land maneuver, uh, it's um, it's a little tricky because it's a visual maneuver. I mean, you have to you know you go down to circle to land minimums, then you break the uh, the the maneuver off, and then you have to visually circle into the uh, into the landing runway. The problem is that. Um, there's high terrain just to the north of that airport. Okay. And so um, you have to, uh, you know, really be careful and time your approach properly. And if you lose sight of the runway of the, of the, of the, of the airport, just immediately do a, go, uh, do a go around because you don't have a lot of room mm -hmm. uh, to play with because of the high terrain to the north. So that's, uh, that's what happened there. But uh, I saw this as well and I was like, oop, not again. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, we suspected that the high terrain to the north may have uh, caused the uh, pilot flying to kind of make it a high tight turn to final and then somehow got confused at the last minute to which runway they were landing on. Yeah. Um, so when the times that I've done circle land maneuvers, usually the way I do it is um, – on, at least on Boeing aircraft, I'm sure it's the same way on, on Airbuses and other another, uh, um, uh, uh, aircraft. Uh, you have um, uh, two route pages, route one and route two, or the active uh, route and the, uh, on the and the secondary route. And usually, what I would do is if I'm if I'm expecting a circular land maneuver, I will uh, load a uh, visual approach into the uh, runway that I, that I expect to land uh, into, and um, kind of use that 
as as when I when I break off the approach, it's it's, it's I mean you're going to be doing it on on autopilot anyway. So you'll 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 get to a certain point, you'll descend on the glide slope to your circuit land minimums, you'll stop your descent there, and then you will you will uh, track off the localizer using head and select or whatever the equivalent is in other aircraft, time it, uh, fly your downwind track. And then while I'm doing the downwind track, I'll have my 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 PM uh, activate and execute uh, uh, route number two, and um, at least on Boeing aircraft Honeywell uh, equipment, uh, the system will automatically give you a three degree glide if you introduce a fifty foot crossing height over the threshold. So that'll that'll project a three degree, uh, uh, you know, ele- not electronic, but but uh, kind of virtual glide path, and you'll have a vertical deviation based off of that, and you're able to tell whether you're high or low. And so, uh, by using that for vertical guidance and using LNAV or lateral navigation for for uh, lateral guidance, it kind of works like an ILS. You're supposed to be visual anyway, so I yeah. you know I just use that as as a backup. Um, it was really nice on the triple seven, the seven eight seven, where you could actually fly these maneuvers using a mode called track select, not just head and select, but track select, and you would you would uh, select that on top of the uh, of the heading uh, heading window uh, there on the mode control panel. And the cool thing about track select is that it'll fly your track regardless of what the wind is. So head and select, you're at the I guess that the, the mercy of the winds, and if you have a very very strong crosswind, you'll either get pushed closer or further away from the airport depending where the where the wind's coming from. But by using track select, uh, the the air, the aircraft is basically flying just a track over the ground, and you can actually select uh, specifically your downwind heading and uh, prevent uh, yourself from getting too close or too far away, which would you know um, uh, mess with your timing because you have to time the maneuver very very precisely, especially when you f- uh, fly into uh, places like Pustan there in South Korea. So uh, yeah, it's glad it's. I mean, it's. I'm, I'm happy that nothing nothing major happened and they are, they they landed safely, but uh, this is one of those maneuvers where if you don't do it very very carefully, you can find yourself in trouble very quickly. Yeah. Well, at least they didn't, you know, fly into a mountain. Uh, they landed yeah. on the wrong runway. Mm-hmm. But as I said earlier, uh, before you got here, Rick, I'm I'm giving them credit because they landed at the correct airport. Oh yeah, absolutely. So. And uh, and they didn't pull a. Uh, what is it, uh, Harrison Ford? Either they used a runway. Yeah, exactly. gotta give them credit so for that too. Good. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, good discussion. Um, see, let's let's get back to the uh, twin otter world, shall we? Oh yeah, back to back to the theme of the <laughs> yeah. episode, or at least the first few news items. Yeah, let's see. This is a Winair uh, DHC six twin otter at Saint uh, Bart's. On the 24th of January, 2014, uh, aircraft on final approach struck struck pedestrian on road. I'm thinking, wow, must have been really low or something. However, well, have you seen the approach to this airport? Yeah, well, tell us about that. Uh, <laughs> so it has a very, and I actually don't know the uh, runway heading designations here or anything. I forget. I'm sure it's I'll, I'll try here, to pull but, up the picture so people uh, can see. Actually, okay. Uh, I've got it here. <laughs> okay. Um. Let's see. It's probably just best to go through and read some yeah, of this because it will, it will say. Um, see if there's I a better place for you to start because there's a lot of maybe. Yeah, it's runway ten two eight. So um, it's this is on approach to runway ten one zero. Um, so first of all, the runway has a downward slope of about 
2%. On approach about 150 meters before the threshold, the aircraft have to cross over a road. Um, and they generally cross it no more than about 10 meters above the road because the road is elevated from the level of the airport anyway. So you're basically flying down the side of the, the hill is the approach path to this runway. Um, it's actually a very interesting and challenging and technical looking approach. Um, Twin Otter is kind of perfect for that in terms of being able to um, short landing ability and and uh, slow approach and being able to do that. Um, but yeah, it's I can see how you could potentially be a little too close there. Um, you certainly don't want to be too high with the uh, runway that's got the down slope and a short runway at that. So I guess this was one of those situations where, and, and I'm sure this particular runway attracts a lot of attention for um, plane spotters and folks who want to see aircraft up close and personal. And the, um, if you're watching the video, uh, I have a picture of a, not this incident aircraft, but um, a similar aircraft and situation where you're coming in on final very, very steeply. And uh, the terrain is quite high. I think they say maybe what uh, uh, 30 feet um, uh, above the roadway right there or, or maybe yeah, not. about 10 meters above the road. So yeah. 33 feet or so. Um, and in fact, even in this picture, there's looks like somebody there with a camera taking a picture of this oh, airplane sure. coming yeah. in. Um, and apparently that's what happened in the, this particular incident incident. Uh, the uh, pedestrian was a photographer and uh, apparently it uh, knocked the uh, camera out of their hands, but uh, they were not injured. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's good. I've seen a video of almost an identical situation of a guy trying to take a picture, and the wheel literally goes past his head. It's, oh. You know, the, the wheel is at shoulder height, and if the guy, I think, had been you know, a foot uh, closer to the aircraft, it would have taken his head off. Mm. So uh, I do wonder, um, it's just a bit like... Um, the, the airport that the guy took off from, uh, St. Martin's, and, you know, people know that they're making an approach very close to uh, photographers and admirers, plane spotters, whatever. I sometimes wonder if they just press the test a little bit and they want to get, you know, we get extra points the if you get that one. a good picture rather than, <laughs> than uh, stick to a more moderate uh, height as they cross that road. Yeah. Yeah, this this is quite an interesting... Uh, Famous airport as well. I've seen a video mm -hmm. as well of a of a. Uh, oh, what was the one that went off the end of the? Yeah, beach, say, uh, beach something or other. Is it twin? It's a twin. Something. It's a twin something or other. Yeah, and it comes in. Yeah, uh, no, it's something smaller. Nah, it's smaller than that. It's uh, I think it's it's piston a piston uh, mm -hmm. twin. It's coming in and uh, you know flies the approach fine, and it gets to uh, the threshold and it uh, just can't get out of ground effect and it finally touches down. Uh, you can't Very really long. tell. Yeah, you can't really tell exactly how far along because I guess the the image is distorted from you know from the, the vantage point of the of whoever's has taken the video. But it, it lands it lands uh, particularly long, and you can you can you can hear the guy um, you know stepping on the brakes and and you know, hoping to stop and he and he doesn't and he goes off the end there and uh, yep just kind of right into the sand on the beach. At the mm -hmm. runway. Yeah, Lane says it was a barren. That sounds barren. Plausible. Correct. Sounds about, yeah, sounds about yeah. right. I often wonder, uh, the obvious is that um, it's better to go off the end at 30 knots than it is to plow into something on the approach doing 120 knots. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, neither is ideal. 
I, I love no, the no. I love the paragraph here. The BEA did not receive any other reports of collisions with vehicles or pedestrians over the years. However, in 2016, a pilot of an arriving PC-12 was observed by AFIS to exit his aircraft after landing and disembarkment of passengers to inspect the aircraft and then inspect the road. He returned to the aircraft and departed without filing an incident report. AFIS requested firefighters to inspect the road who found a damaged road sign. <laughs> <laughs> nothing nope <laughs> nothing to see here whoops it's okay this yeah. is fine <laughs> i like this too the investigation did not determine whether the pedestrian was aware of the risk he incurred despite markings in the area because <laughs> markings, are markings to let people know you know uh, i mean presumably they've got a live tower there why don't they have a set of traffic lights on the road yeah i don't know it's a good question mm, a tower a i don't concern. know that there's a tower there <laughs> is there is it not oh. mm, there might be okay. i'm not sure no, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. anyway. Someone will tell us. Bunch of cowboys. I have not been there, obviously. Too rich of a place for you, Liz, you say? <laughs> okay. Um, I oh. see on the picture of that uh, twin out going over, there's a bloke with a big spear. So I see that, too. To <laughs> some of the tires as the guys <laughs> go trying. over. It's an interesting place for a uh, uh, <laughs> statue like that. Yeah, and there's yeah. also a big white cross, uh, you know, a religious cross on the hillside just a little bit further up. So I'm assuming that's someone who didn't quite make it over. <laughs> well, at least, the, at least for... the windsock is pointing the right direction, so. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Good point. So it's dead straight. <laughs> good good right down looks like 15 knots to me, at least. Yeah. All right. Um, next item in our news notebook from Robert. He sent this in. Um, and he said, uh, happy new year crew, just making sure this news made it to your, into your queue. And it's a link to an NBC news.com article. And it uh, has a, basically it's a picture. Uh, I'll see. I'll go ahead and now I'm not going to share it. It's, uh, one of those pictures of all the airplanes and, uh, uh, like a radar 24, what is it called? Radar 24. Um, flight radar flight, 24 flight radar 24 uh, <laughs> depiction of all these I'm sorry I'm a little foggy headed um, flying over the country and then right over the state of Texas it's like a big giant vacuum there are no hmm. airplanes at all avoid yeah yep. avoid yes DFW ATC closed due to COVID-19 cases all those connections all those crew this is going to be a logistical nightmare um, this is you know this has been happening quite a bit in the past several months where somebody has been uh, diagnosed with COVID in a facility and they go, well, I'm going to have to do a deep cleaning of this thing. And there have been um, sectors closed on and off um, and not just DFW or I guess this would be uh, Fort Worth center. Um, uh, but other, I, I think it was Washington center that was closed one time. And we, yeah. where was I going? I forget somewhere from Charlotte to the Northeast mm -hmm. somewhere. Yeah, and we basically yeah, went out over Ohio to get there. Exactly. So this has been happening on and off uh, quite a bit lately. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Nashville or Memphis centers, uh, the area around uh, their sec sectors around Nashville were closed off and on. And that wasn't due to COVID, but that was due to that uh, New Year's, not New Year's, uh, Christmas Day RV mm -hmm. bomber uh, there um, in downtown Nashville. I guess they 
had some issues with certain. Yeah, that sectors. would uh, actually. I was uh, I was uh, uh, up and about uh, when that happened, oh. and um, yeah, ATC ATC zero. Um, uh, quite interesting trying to get into uh, into the uh, DHL hub um, around that area there. So we uh, came in from the north, uh, went well to the east of, and came around east to west, um, and um, uh, obviously we had no idea what had happened. Right. Uh, come to find out um, uh, when we landed, but uh, uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd never actually experienced anything like that before. You know, a, a, a evolving situation like that in flight, um, and it's something really that you, you you really can't can't plan for because no. uh, obviously it's nothing in the notums because we were we were airborne by then. Um, uh, I had to feel that I had, so um, it gets to the point where okay, if it uh, gets uh, much worse, uh, where am I going to put this thing? Right. Um, so, uh, well, I mean, thankfully, it, it worked out fine. But uh, it's one of those it's one of those instances where, it a uh, little, little bit of uncertainty. It's uh, it's not something that's welcome, especially when you don't know what's going to happen, or or you don't know what's happening because they won't tell you. It's just ATC zero. So, uh, but I mean, thankfully, nothing happened. We landed, no problem. But uh, but still, that's when you appreciate the fact that you might have some extra contingency fuel on board. For well, I tell you, I mean, I I uh, I'm in what's called the the Back in the seven four, um, I was the two ton splasher because you know every 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 time they 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 uh, asked uh, us for the fuel figure, and if, if we could afford, if we could, if we had the room for it, we'd always put you know two extra tons on top of of, of whatever the the block fuel was. And here on the seven six, I tend to do the same. Although we we use uh, pounds here, so I'll I'll go two thousand pounds, twenty five hundred pounds on top uh, if I have room for it, both on takeoff and landing weights. Um, and uh, you know, it's thing is that once you take off, that's the fuel you have. So you have to you have to make do. So um, you know, it always helps to have, helps to have a little little bit extra there. Yes, unless you're on I, I've asked the question when this happened last time because we mentioned it a few shows ago, and I was going to write to opposing bases and ask them what do that they they don't have. I'm surprised they don't have contingency plans that allow uh, other centers to uh, remote data link the radar information from that area uh, and at least give a basic service to keep traffic flowing rather than try and, you know, just just end up with an empty space in the sky. Um, you may not be able to control aircraft into airfields there. Uh, you may not have that facility, but at least you could uh, keep en route traffic moving overhead. I'm just a bit surprised that facility doesn't exist. Yeah, that mm. is surprising, actually. Yeah, it's interesting. It's got to be the unions. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> ain't my job. You get paid extra <laughs> for doing that, surely. Um, Nick, why don't you take this next one? I'm not sure if you are the one who uh, put this in the news uh, notebook, but it is from the Daily Mail, so I'm a little suspicious. I uh, was. Uh, I thought the one I put in was from the Times, but. Uh, oh. Yeah, this is certainly from the Daily Mail, um, and it concerns jet fuel. Uh, you know, we've talked uh, off and on about how we're going to replace uh, carbon-based fuels that we currently burn at great rates, uh, perhaps with electrical propulsion or whatever, and nothing really seems to have come up that uh, is a likely um, replacement. But uh, this was, I thought, fascinating, and it, they're talking about creating jet fuel out of carbon dioxide, um, which is the very thing we're trying to get rid of. So 
if you could make a power aircraft by somehow using carbon dioxide, that would be great. So it's a team here in the UK at Oxford University, and they uh, have a way which uses cheap iron catalysts to capture carbon dioxide, CO2, from the air and convert it into fuel that can be used by an aircraft. And the academics have labelled their innovation a significant social advance in how the abundant greenhouse gas is converted and its potential to make flying even more environmentally uh, acceptable. Uh, the chemical reaction takes CO2 out of the air, converts it into jet fuel, which is then emitted by the aircraft in flight. There's no need to extract oil from the ground, and the process is completely carbon neutral. Uh, it contributes, uh, I think they're talking about aviation now, around 10% of the UK's greenhouse gas emissions and is growing as air traffic rises here and abroad. I think that's a little high, but uh, I'll take it. Uh, and flying, as a result, has become an environmental and political battleground. We know that. You know, environmentalists are very opposed to the expansion of air travel, uh, mainly for increasing CO2 emissions. So um, the uh, UK uh, has legally bound itself to go net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So we've got 30 years to settle this up. So a new form of neutral carbon neutral fuel must be found. Um, and um, the issue for aviation is that its fuel breaks down uh, and spews CO2 and water out, uh, both of which are emitted into the atmosphere. Uh, this new technique would capture the gas that's already in the atmosphere and create fuel, negating the need to fill up with new fuel extracted from the ground. Um, now, CO2 is a highly stable compound or atom. Series of atoms? I don't know, I have to get an expert into that. Uh, but the researchers, led by Peter Edwards at Oxford University, have managed to convert it back into fuel by using a chemical reaction powered by an iron-based catalyst. They don't explain exactly what it is. I suspect it's quite secret at the moment. Uh, at low temperatures and adding hydrogen. So hydrogen is obviously quite volatile. Um, uh, it, it would make very good fuel, hydrogen. I mean, they're going to use it in... Uh, hydrogen converters in cars and things, uh, so um, that would obviously um, be uh, a pretty good, a pretty efficient fuel. Uh, and he said the breakthrough, breakthrough could put Britain at the forefront of a revolutionary new green industry. Um, they're basically selling themselves, so I'm not going to read all this stuff out. Um, but they reckoned uh, that he, uh, this professor said he expected he could scale it up in two to three years to create jet fuel in large quantities. And he said, our vision is that the world can see that captured CO2 can be used as an energy carrier to enable sustainable aviation. Well, if he can do that, I think it will just <laughs> really have uh, solved one of the major problems we have in the aviation industry. Everyone's trying to offset carbon uh, but if uh, by putting an aircraft up that actually uh, burns co2 uh, we're really going to uh, turn the aviation industry around with regards to our environmental impact i think they're working very closely with the department of candy canes and unicorns <laughs> well 
I must admit, when I first read it, I thought perhaps, you know, is this, is this for real? I mean, this can't be right. Um, but No, wow. you'd, you'd think it's it's impossible. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I hope that they're onto something uh, because, as you well, said. Well, so do I. But I think, but personally, I'll be quite surprised if we ever hear of this again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never know. Quite possibly, yes. Yeah. Interesting concept, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like the outside-of-the-box thinking here. Let's, you do. Uh, you know, all this CO2 floating around, let's to get rid of it. Yeah. Issues, you know. Yeah. What is it uh, they said that they iron catalysts to capture the CO2? Hmm. Yes, yeah, so not quite iron-based well. catalyst. And then you've got to introduce hydrogen in there as well. Um, so I'm not certain how it all works. I'm, I, would, I know a jet engine will burn just about anything. You can chuck coal dust down a jet engine and it'll fire up and run. But, <laughs> okay, come um, on. There's a bad <laughs> joke about a jet engine somewhere. Serious, <laughs> <though>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for it. <laughs> All right. Well, interesting. I hope that we learn more about this and it's something that's really going to happen. Yeah, yeah, it'd be good. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about landing at the right airport earlier. Actually, they did. Let me guess. Someone landed at the wrong airport. Yeah, well, sort of. Uh, Nepali oh. airline Buddha Air flies passengers to the wrong airport. Um, so I think the pilots landed at the correct airport. It's just, were they intended to? Yeah, where they, where they were just thinking not, they were supposed to. The passengers to. did not intend to go there. <laughs> no, the passengers did not want okay. to go there, apparently. Uh, the domestic airline departed from Kathmandu's, uh, what is that, Tribhuvan in, International? Sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> On December 18th, from there, it flew northwest to the country's second biggest city of Pokhara. Instead of going southeast to the flight's intended destination, the southern city of Janakpur. The uh, two cities are about 250 miles apart. Um, executive officer at Buddha, uh, let's see, Asta Baznet, executive officer at Buddha Air, tells CNN Travel that the mix up was due to two factors. Lapses in communication and failure to follow detailed standard operating procedures. <laughs> okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, in simpler terms, it was just a mix-up. Due to weather conditions, many Nepali airports open later in the day during the winter. Because of that abbreviated window, it's not unusual for multiple flights to leave in a short amount of time. And evidently, that led to confusion. Still, despite the surprise the passengers must have gotten when they pulled into the wrong airport, the situation reportedly went relatively smoothly. Once Buddha Air became aware of what happened, they had the pilots take the passengers on to Janakpur as planned. There are no direct flights between Pokhara and Janakpur. <laughs> I have no idea how to pronounce these things. Janakpur. That sounds right to me. So the airline was granted special permission to fly there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how um, doing something with your manuals or standard operating procedures would have would have uh, yeah fixed yeah, this. I can understand the lapse in communication yeah yeah because usually because SOP deals directly with the operation of the aircraft not uh, how to get from uh, you know well, A to B they should have a standard procedure of asking their passengers where they want to go <laughs> there you go Ask, have you ever around. been on an aircraft where that's actually happened because <laughs> I have and it's interesting <laughs> what so what tell us about that I think I've talked about this before. Used, uh, back when I lived in eastern North Carolina, so there are two Greenvilles, one in North Carolina. Well, there's probably Greenville in every state of the country, but probably, yeah. um, there's one in North Carolina, there's one in South Carolina, both served by um, 
regional uh, carriers here out of Charlotte and really the only way you're going to get to, well, not, not Greenville, South Carolina, but Greenville, North Carolina, you're only getting there by going through Charlotte. Um, and they would always have the flights depart within like 10 minutes of each other from adjacent gates without jetways where you have to actually walk out onto the ramp, get onto the correct aircraft. Um, and I was actually on one of those flights one time when someone was on the, the incorrect airplane. Oh boy. <laughs> They're going to say, is everyone here going to North Carolina? And someone go, I don't know. <laughs> but you're assuming that some people, people know sure. the difference between North Carolina mm. and South Carolina. It's difficult. I know it could be. <laughs> hey, before I moved here, it's just, you know, one big Carolinas. blob on the map. Right. Yeah. Carolinas. Yeah. Somewhere down there. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Interesting. Okay. Um, finally, now looking uh, at Nick's background uh fireworks oh, yeah. going off and such <laughs> kind of very apt. ties in with this one um an incident uh that happened very recently on the uh on new year's eve december 31st 2020 an avianca airbus a319 uh got entangled with a hot air balloon that i guess was um intended to shoot off like a it's like a firework platform kind of balloon um let's see what do they call it exactly here um a pyrotechnic a pyrotechnic balloon yeah pyrotechnic mm. balloon uh reported the balloon had not been a pyrotechnics one no, that's not it looking at something else um january 3rd 2021 columbia's aerocivil uh, caa reported that the hot air balloon was made of paper plastics and some parts of aluminum uh, here, let me show you some pictures here. It's uh, very festive. Looking. I think they, they weren't planning on carrying any passengers in this hot air balloon. Oh, I oh, hope actually, not. Actually, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah might. Uh, we should ask our hot air balloon drivers. Is there <laughs> one, not one in the chat room today? I don't know. Is, is Grant? I haven't seen them. Mm -mm. Uh, um, no, this is a this is a, this is a, a very customary in, in in South America, Latin America, really. So uh, on to the fly the first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just, you just, you know, you just l light up this. It's kind of like the 4th of July oh from God. down there. So you just, you just, you know, uh, send up, you know, uh, fireworks and balloons and all sorts of stuff. And it's, uh, it's, it's quite interesting actually, but, uh, I could totally, see, I could totally see this happening there. Um, it made the aircraft look very festive. Big. Yeah. Yeah. It did. You know, lands with all these, uh, like streamers and stuff on it. Oh, that, mm. that's a video there. So, yeah, look at that. I love that. That's a nice look, yeah. I think. A little bit of drag, perhaps. Perfect for New Year's Eve. Yeah. Exactly. Can you imagine hitting that? Apparently, oh, uh, Columbia's National Federation of Pyrotechnics, FENALPI, reported the balloon had not had been a pyrotechnics one. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what, well, what was it. Was it was made of paper, yeah. plastics, and some parts of aluminum. That sounds like. Okay. Well, well, they burst on impact with the aircraft. Funny old thing. But it, the airplane apparently had already touched down. So thank the Lord for that. Oh, had it. Okay. I thought it was um, yeah. in flight. Yeah. I thought I got uh, tangled with him on. Uh, drift, on uh, drifted on, across on, the runway as he was rolling uh, out, I gather. Oh, okay. Mm. Is that what it was? Oh, okay. That, uh, so maybe if you live immediately adjacent to a large airport or airport of any type, um, not the greatest <laughs> idea to be. Sending things up into the sky. Good point. I, yeah. That is a good point. You know, we don't make that enough. That point. No. 
Thank you. No, so, no, no, I think we should do it at least once a show. Yes, as a public. I saw that happen in, in Chicago once. You know the little candle lanterns, the ones uh-huh. that are like just little tiny ones. Luminaires. Someone or was whatever. sending those up right next to Midway, like on an adjacent street corner. I, that doesn't seem like a great idea. No. No. Yeah. Mm. Excuse me. Uh, are there airplanes that fly around here very often? <laughs> How like, long have you lived in this neighborhood? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. Well. Oh, it looks like um, our producer director control room has gone off air. Power failure in Toronto, apparently. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, Liz. Um, well, you can't hear me because you don't have any electricity, but uh, she's let us know that uh, she's experienced a power failure and that she'll be back with us as soon as she can. But in the meantime, we can always um, do this part of the show, which is getting to know us. Getting to like us, getting to hope you like us too, or something like that. All right. So, how has everybody been? You know, we missed you, Rick, on the last show, and Steph. It was just uh, uh, the retired airline captain and the almost retired airline captain, and we missed you guys. Um, let's start with you, Rick. What's been, what have you been up to? Oh man, it's been uh, very, very busy. Um, it's been a little while for me, actually. Um, I was supposed to be on a show, was it two shows ago? I was supposed to be on, and then I had a, um, it, was, it was a flight from Cincinnati to Miami. And I'm going through my uh, preliminary cockpit checks. I go to set the uh, runway heading for departure. And uh, very interestingly, the last digit is stuck on seven. So every heading that I select has a seven at the end. So um, <laughs> just round up or down as appropriate. It's fine. Well, either that or just select uh, or just request from ATC. Just give me anything that ends in a, in a seven. <laughs> I can fine. fly heading one fifty seven, one sixty seven, three hundred seven 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 zero one seven. I want to be very specific about my headings. <laughs> exactly. So I was I was like, oh, this is this isn't going to work. So I, I I call maintenance. I have the guys come over. Uh, they start troubleshooting the thing, and uh, uh, eventually they have to. Uh, they end up um, uh, swapping out the entire remote control panel, and then testing the whole thing. So we ended up leaving. Um, um, quite a bit later than we anticipated got into Miami late and all that. And, uh, you know, just, just the last couple of, um, weeks in December are very, very busy for us. Um, uh, freight haulers, you know, picking up all the slack, giving Santa Claus a hand here. So, um, I did that. And then, um, uh, just, uh, just, you know, stuff at home. Um, other than, a little bit under the weather as well. I don't know. I, I think I uh, I uh, uh, may have a uh, little overdid it a little overdone it a little bit at the at the gym. So um, it's got this pain again on my left arm and but yeah, whatever. But I'm uh, working through it and uh, uh, heading Does back hurt to work do here. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> hurt, like. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. If it does I'm that, I'm going to say, look, I've got pain in my right shoulder, my left arm, and my left knee, and that's I never Nick. go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> different aches and pains there, Nick. That's, that's the benefit of getting old, like us. You know, you don't have to go to the yeah. gym to feel like Those that. Those come with. <laughs> yeah. Birthdays. But uh, no. But other than that, just uh, you know, just busy flying and uh, 
doing all the stuff that uh, needs to be done at home when I'm not uh, at home. So <laughs> things are uh, things are good. Just just staying busy. That's good. How was your? I, I don't think we talked to you uh, since Christmas. Uh, Christmas good. Yeah, Christmas was good. I well, um, I was um, I was flying twenty fourth, twenty fifth. Um, so I actually um, uh, made it here uh, after Christmas, but you know it is what it is. Yeah, it's one of those things where uh, um, uh, sat. Well, I I was the line that I got last time is what's called a hybrid line, where you have um, part of the line is reserve, which was the the the, the latter part of the line. And then the other part of the line is actually assigned flying. So, and the reserve end of it, uh, I was hoping that they wouldn't activate me uh, towards the end, but uh, they ended up activating me, and uh, you know, got to got to fly for two extra days. Yay. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> but hey, at least uh, at least uh, somebody else got to spend Christmas at home. Um, yeah. uh, New Year's was fine because I well, I got to I, I did get to spend that here, which was uh, which was good. But it was uh, you know just just. Really, not a lot going on here. Um, uh, it was basically uh, dinner here and early night, and uh, and then uh, first thing in the uh, on, on the first, uh, just resume with the normal, um, I guess, uh, uh, routine. You know, mm-hmm. run gym in the morning and uh, stuff around the house, and uh, really nothing too exciting. But uh, yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right, um, Steph, how about yourself? What have you been up to? I wish I had exciting things to talk about as well, but I don't. A little bit of flying hiatus over the uh, colder part of winter here in the Carolinas, next few weeks or so. Um, Yeah, I missed you guys last week. Um, I've been busy from a work sense as well, kind of the lead up to the end of the year. is always kind of crazy for us, and there's other things going on. Um, um, Just administrative wise and things like that that are keeping me busy um and what i forget exactly oh yeah we we postponed the original date of the show because i was planning to do that on the saturday after christmas i think it was mm-hmm. boxing day correct yeah and uh jeff reached out and said hey would you mind can we change things up a little bit i said yep no problem i don't have any plans i'm not doing anything except i completely forgot that i had made plans and had a uh, friend that was passing through town and I agreed to to meet, had not seen them for a couple of years. So I had to um, uh, kind of sheepishly say, I'm, I'm sorry, I screwed up. I definitely can't do that day. <laughs> so I missed you guys last week. I apologize about that. Ah. Um, good to see friends, but I did miss you guys. Well, as I said, you know, when you're not there, then it just makes us appreciate you that much more when you are. Uh, Same uh, with you, Rick. Mm, appreciate that. Oh, uh, thank you. Love you guys. So, Um, uh, the rest of the week, truly, I didn't really do much of anything. It was nice. I had a week off of work, um, so some time to relax and recover, and I had all these plans to get a bunch of stuff done around the house, and I got maybe, I don't know, 7% of them done. Well, that's an interesting Off to a good start. (laughs) (laughs) Got a few things cleaned out, cleaned out a few closets, got rid of some stuff that, you know, hadn't been used or worn for a while. Um took care of some yard work that was uh, it's definitely still the middle of leaf season here. Not all the leaves have fallen off the trees yet, but we're getting close. Um, and we have a lot of trees. So there's leaves all in the gutters and all over the yard and pathways and kind of trying to figure out where to put them and manage them is always a little bit of a, a trick. So spent one whole day basically doing yard work. Um, had some nice weather for it. And 
got to spend some time with family. So it's always nice. Yeah. Quiet holidays, but um, much needed rest. Yeah. It's that time of year just to kind of relax a little bit. Usually speaking of relaxing and taking pictures with your brand new camera, I was just seeing how well it would track (laughs) your eyes on the screen. Uh Uh-huh. And it's brilliant. Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us about that new (laughs) fancy, expensive toy you have there. (laughs) Well, it's Christmas present. I've been waiting since uh, June. So it was actually started off as a birthday present, but Mm -hmm. uh, ended up as a Christmas present. But uh, yeah, it's it's brilliant. Uh, This new camera, absolutely fabulous. I've been waiting for the adapter to arrive so I can fit my old lenses to it. And that came today. So... I would have been out taking uh, pictures and having a good time. <laughs> the weather had been absolutely foul. So, yeah, been very dank over the UK for uh, the last uh, week or so. Um, but uh, hopefully uh, tomorrow and the next day will be dry and Saturday might actually be sunny. So definitely going to be taking some pictures uh, with it. Uh, very sophisticated. Looking forward to getting into the menus and working out how clever it is. Um, other than that, uh, life ticks on very nicely. Thanks. Uh, uh, I've actually, I think for the first time ever got completely up to date with plain tales. So, um, yesterday, I think I put out the one that we did on the Christmas show, mm-hmm. uh, the, the boxing day show. Uh, and, um, yeah, I, I just feel, oh, this is superb. Life, life couldn't be better right now. Thanks. Oh, excellent. Well, of course, as soon as we finish today's show. Then you'll be be behind again. <laughs> I will be behind uh, for again. a few days, but then you'll yeah. put that one up, and yeah, then I'll be I'll back on top of the world again. as quickly as I can. <laughs> Thank you. So all right. Um, anything else? Um, no, 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 everything is tickety boo right. here. Thank you very much. In the UK, very nice. So, other than the country is in complete lockdown again, yeah, uh, we've got national lockdown. What's that uh, and uh, probably won't be released until. Uh, you know, people start uh, showing um, the advantages of having taken uh, the vaccine, uh, and um, you know, the number of hospital admissions drop as a result. Um, so, please, if you're out there and listening, and you are in any doubt, don't be in any doubt. Have the vaccine, uh, protect yourself, protect others, and um, uh, trust the science. Uh, please, uh, we're. I've always been a very science-based person because when you're flying an airplane, there's no point in trying to dream up theories that don't really exist and fly an airplane using that kind of uh, uh, understanding. Um, I'm very much a person who believes in proven facts. So, um, yeah, believe the facts. They're not out there to fool you. They're out there to make our lives better. So uh, there's my party political broadcast on behalf of the uh, vaccine supporters. <laughs> Go on, have a jab. <laughs> yeah, please. Go and stick pins in yourself. <laughs> Be, or have uh, someone or, else do or, it for you, better still. S- yeah. See someone who's an expert in having or in uh, using needles, implementing such yeah. fine tools. Spoken from Absolutely. a true backstabber. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I couldn't agree more with Nick, so... Um, yeah, I'll be anxiously watching how things hopefully are changing over the coming weeks to months as well. Me too. All right. Uh, last episode we, or I was in Norfolk, Virginia, even though Radio Roger said I was in APG headquarters because we kind of delayed it a little bit. 
But uh, the I mentioned on the last episode that the next day I was going to see, be seeing uh, Greg Peterson in Atlanta, and uh, I did. Uh, he was going to fly with me um, from Atlanta to Chicago O'Hare and back to Atlanta. And uh, that didn't happen because when we were en route from Norfolk, Virginia to Atlanta that morning, we um, got a message from Acme that said uh, we were no longer flying the O'Hare turnaround. We were going to go up to Newark instead. So these things always happen. Anytime you make plans, you know, like uh, flying one of your APG community members somewhere, uh, it's likely going to change. So uh, it wasn't all a loss, though. Uh, I guess uh, Greg uh, has a friend who is a um, co-host on the Next Trip podcast. His name was Drew, or is Drew, um, and uh, he met uh, Greg and, in turn, myself in Atlanta that morning. And then those two flew up to Chicago together. And then I think uh, Drew, I think he's based in uh, at Dulles, Washington. So he fr- flew from Chicago back to Washington. Greg flew back to Atlanta. So it wasn't a total loss. And actually, uh, after I got back from Newark, I hung around a little bit, waited for Greg's flight to come in from Chicago, you know, the one that I was supposed to be doing. And then we uh, uh, grabbed a, a bite to eat at the Atlanta airport, got to visit a little bit longer. And then uh, I had to head home and he had to head back up to Lexington. So it was a it was a nice meetup. We didn't do any um, meetup audio or anything like that. So, um, but anyway, it was great to, uh, in fact, I think we have, uh, he sent us some feedback, um, which we'll hopefully get to today uh, regarding um, a question he had about something. So uh, look forward to that in the feedback portion of today's show. Um, let's see. So it was nice meeting you, Drew. Uh, again, uh, the next trip, uh, an aviation and travel podcast with doug and drew so i got to meet uh, uh one half of that crew uh let's see so i did that monday tuesday trip uh then i went out on another trip a two-day uh wednesday and thursday and then i picked up a green slip on january 1st and january 2nd and uh when i was it was just a nice easy thing just uh fly in the afternoon um, to, uh, Nashville, which is a pretty short little flight from Atlanta. And then they put us up in a really nice place. Uh, it's called the Gaylord Opryland hotel. It's like this big fancy, almost like an amusement. It reminded me a lot of, uh, uh, if Disney world did Opryland, it was like really, really sophisticated, um, atriums with all kinds of, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but, uh, like a little, a river walk thing going through there and boats and trees. It was all decorated for Christmas and that kind of thing. So it was kind of cool. Unfortunately, we weren't there very long. But when I was in the airplane um, doing the pre-flight, I, I noticed I was coughing, I had a little cough, and I just kind of joked with my first officer uh, that, uh, you know, it was just a little, little touch of COVID. And uh, I think I may have been right, actually. Um, <laughs> I really feel bad <laughs> that I was joking around about it um, because I had to contact uh, him uh, after uh, I got back home from that trip the next day and said, you know, I'm not feeling very good. And, you know, I was joking about the COVID thing, but I, I don't know, maybe I do have COVID. So I just wanted to warn you, let you know you might want to get tested. And then I contacted the uh, 
ACME chief pilot office, and uh, that's the protocol we have to go through if we suspect uh, that we may have COVID or COVID symptoms. And so they said, oh, yep, sounds like uh, many of the symptoms you're describing are uh, definitely ones that we've been seeing with uh, pilots getting infected with this thing. Uh, so uh, you're off the next two trips, um, no-fly stand. And the good news is that uh, it's not being charged against my sick leave balance, which is kind of nice. Um, but um, so I'll still get paid for flying the trips, um, just staying at home and quarantining. I did send off for a, um, a test on Monday and hopefully getting the results later today or tomorrow. And uh, so I'll know for sure whether or not I have covid or not but i've been kind of feeling eh, not very good um but not really terrible so i if if i do indeed have covid um i have pretty mild symptoms so that's good well the good thing is that you have a 99.9 percent uh, chance of surviving so uh yeah i think you'll be all right yeah i'm hoping that i'd, I'd just rather not go through the whole go into the hospital icu and ventilator thing that's what i'm trying to avoid yeah mm-hmm. so but uh, I, I don't think that I'm anywhere near that kind of uh, infection. So mm-hmm. if, if I even have it. So we'll see. Um, but that's pretty much been it for me. So when I got home from the trip on Saturday, uh, I just kind of battened the hatches down in the uh, bunker and uh, been self-quarantining and just keeping to myself just so that I don't infect anybody else. So trying to be a good boy. Well, glad you're feeling okay enough and glad you're feeling okay enough to do the show today. Yeah, me too. A little, little foggy, but you know, it's, I know it's hard to differentiate between my normal fogginess. It's just like normal. I know. See, I I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. What else was I going to say? Oh, um, I mentioned the, um, the RWY runway deck playing cards from, uh, JP Kiernan Lewis on the uh, last show, his Kickstarter. Um, Larry Gregory um, uh, said, Hey, uh, looks like it's too late. Uh, it was sold out. And I got this uh, message from JP. It says, Thank you so much for the shout out on the show. Glad the cards got to you okay. I'm actually working on a new deck with airports from around the world, an international edition. And I also just ordered a new batch of the original US edition after running out last week. So that's what happened, Larry. Uh, he ran out and they're making some more. So check out the uh, Kickstarter uh, project uh, URL, uh, which I'll have in the show notes uh, sometime in the future. Maybe you'll be able to order some. And uh, what else? That is about it, I think, for me and the rest of us. Looks like Liz is still without power. Um, she has not rejoined us in the uh on the stream yard backstage or whatever you want to call it so but she's watching us we're getting messages from her so she must be using her phone to watch the uh to watch stream yard okay thank oh look she's even still directing <laughs> from, mm-hmm. from her phone telling today. me jeff coffee fund <laughs> okay <laughs> Thank you, Liz. She just really wants to make sure that you stay on track with your. I know you know, she's good. A little bit of fogginess going she's on. Still Love in the it. dark here. Well, I'm in the dark here too, <laughs> Liz. Even though the lights are on. Um, all right. Let me see. Where is that? Uh, here we go. 
As Liz said, let's move on to the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Well, we have the coffee fund here at the APG, your way to support the show financially. And a couple different ways to do it. One is the coffee fund classic method. I just realized my graphic here. I forgot to change the uh, heading. That should say coffee fund classic right there. Um, And uh, folks using the coffee fund classic method since the last episode are Rich from Sheffield. Andrew Watson, Alistair Kerr, Becky Rausch, Randy Ackerman, and Anthony Smithson. Uh, The other way to support the show via the Coffee Fund is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash airlinepilotguy. And Michael Rogers, yay, has a new producer. Thank you, Michael, for becoming a patron of the show. If you guys want to join this great group of folks who support us financially, please Look into it by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And you can find out all about it there. We do really appreciate it. Hopefully you'll join them as well. Uh, let's start off with this first one. Um, someone named Liz. Uh, oh, I know who that is. It's our producer director saw this and decided it was uh, feedback worthy. And it is a video. And let me go over here to the video section and hit play. And finally, there are many uses to which the Israeli army could put one of its high-tech drones. But the latest is saving the life of a rare and near-helpless vulture chick that lost its mother. So for some high-tech military hardware, a change of culture for a vulture. She's a griffin vulture and a mother and a member of a species so endangered she's tagged. But tragically, soon after these pictures were taken, she died when she flew into power cables. The conservationists who set up this Nest camera knew that the father left behind would not be able to rear their one chick on his own. And so a savior was sought and found. Called Mother Drone, it's been dropping food onto the cliff face ledge every two or three days. The use of the drone makes this a pioneering rescue operation and there were plenty of risks. It was very tense. We were very afraid that it would affect the chick and he might jump off the nest or the father would attack it. The drone itself has been blurred because it belongs to the Israeli army and is classified top secret. But this precision flying is possible thanks to state-of-the-art technology that gives the operator a pilot's view. These are real drone pictures, but it's virtual reality 
created by a cutting-edge company that makes for this meticulous maneuvering in the tightest of spots. You must be proud of what you and your company have done. I am proud. Uh, it's another use case we never thought about. When you, when you open a company, you, know, you build something for a, for a certain market. You never think about all the possibilities that you might find. Equipped with the right tools, it was a special Israeli army unit that actually conducted these unique stealthy feeding missions. The major in command, who cannot be identified, told me that to prepare, they built an indoor mock-up of the ledge ant nest and spent hours practicing on it before starting food drops for real. The chick has discovered that there's no such thing as a free lunch, but it's been able to fight off thieves and to grow thanks to the food provided by its father and by mother drone. The collaboration between the army, the tech company and the conservationists got the ultimate endorsement this week when the chick flew for the first time. Job done. And attacked the drone and destroyed it. No, I'm just no, I was, I was just going to say, and flew straight into the drone and died. <laughs> oh no, that's even that's so tragic. <laughs> oh man. Well, that's an interesting. The interesting bit for me is that looks uh, top secret drone. Looks like it could go all sorts of clever places. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder if Mossad ha Mossad have a few of those. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, Can they, you imagine the kind of toys they have? Oh man. Yeah, just it just boggles the mind. Yeah, they kind oh, well, of they sure kind of blurred it out a little bit in the video, but I'm thinking it still pretty much looked like a regular drone to me. And I'm really not sure exactly what they were hiding. I don't know. Well, that high def footage they had of it, they didn't want you to zoom in on any secrets, secret I guess. technology. Yeah. Anyway, it's very clever use of uh, a drone, you know, for for uh, humane for or good. humanity for good. Not humanity. Um, for vulturemanity. Vulturemanity. <laughs> yeah. That was yeah. a little bit of a stretch, I thought, with rhyming culture with vulture at the beginning. I was like, <laughs> yeah. what are you trying to say? You're a culture vulture. <laughs> By the way, that was the uh, ITV network. Uh, that was uh, that video from them. We'll put the link to it in the show notes for, in case you're listening to the audio only podcast. Uh, uh, pretty interesting footage there of the uh, of the environment that they were having to operate the drone. And uh, mm -hmm. all right, thanks, Liz, for sending that in. And fingers crossed that you'll keep the power on there in uh, Toronto. Um, moving on, this is a this is an interesting one. Um, Nick sent this in. Not not our. Nick Anderson, but uh, Nick Benson, who's the chief av geek uh, on Jet Tip. Uh, he's in Burnsville, Minnesota. And uh, this is actually a link to an article that he authored. He said, Hey, Jeff, enjoy your show. Thought you might get a kick out of the story. I must admit, I'm proud of the headline. And the headline is thus Swirl in airlift, irregular. Antonov flights deliver relief to Phoenix laxative factory. <laughs> Very little, little punny action there. Mm -hmm. uh, I see. Uh, let's see an AN uh, picture of an AN 124 100 M departing Minneapolis, St. Paul for Phoenix 
on December 13th. And again, this will all be in the show notes. You can look at the pictures. Aviation enthusiasts have been scratching their heads, wondering about a series of flights being operated by Ukraine's Antonov Airlines between Mumbai and Phoenix. These flights have been unusual, both in the number of intermediate stops being made, as many as six, as well as their frequency. Three of the massive AN-124s have completed the route so far, and a fourth is en route. The AvGeek rumor mill provided some hints at its cargo, with people saying it was carrying silica, seeds, or medicine. The payload is tons and tons of psyllium, a plant grown in India, whose primary use is a as a fibrous laxative. Coincidentally, psyllium is the main ingredient in Metamucil, which is manufactured in Phoenix. And Coincidence or not? I don't, probably not. Not. Uh, let's see. I had wondered about these at 124, so because I, I see them out here all the time. I'm like, oh, what the, what so what that's all about. They're just making people regular. Yeah. There mm-hmm. you go. Um, there's a map showing the uh, route from Bombay to, uh, I don't know what that place is, KRW. Rick probably knows. Kazakhstan, KRW, maybe? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, don't know. I, I don't recognize those things in uh, in in uh, Asia or so Europe. in Turkmenistan? Turkmenistan? Turkmenbashi? Uh, oh, look Airport? at that. It's right there in the, in the narrative, uh, if I just kept reading. Ah. Yeah, Turkmenistan. <laughs> Turkmen, oh, I was Turkmen so proud Bashi. of my detective skills there. Very good. <laughs> I'm thinking, how does she know that? Oh, I see it right there too. Um, and in uh, Leipzig, Leipzig in Germany, and Reykjavik. ah, that uh, that place I'm very familiar with. But it's interesting that it has to stop in Turkmenistan on its way because it's. Uh, uh, I mean, you can do the. In fact, I've done the, the 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 flight from Bombay and Delhi to Leipzig in in one straight shot, and it's really not that bad. But I guess. Uh, Weight they're limited. Very evenly but, spaced yeah. legs, Rick. I wonder. It's a lot of fiber they're they carrying. Maximize <laughs> cargo. Yeah, I know. Fuel. I know. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> those those, those uh, porta potties they have on board just to have so much capacity, <laughs> and they have to stop. Exactly. You got you got to <laughs> land, and you have to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let the engineers do their thing, I guess. <laughs> um, with so many shorter legs, one could speculate they're trading range for capacity. That's what uh, Nick is is uh, speculating. Yeah. Uh, the aircraft operating these flights are UR82027, one of Antonov's two AM124-100Ms, which can carry a load of up to 150,000 kilograms, which is 330,693 pounds. Wow, that's a lot. Um, mm, and then, that's a lot of weight, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a little bit more information about the AM124 in his article, um, enlightening have geeks around the world about this amazing airplane it never ceases to amaze me what people are interested in with regards aviation yeah me too um everyone everyone's got their niche interest perceptive it's like hmm what is going on here yeah it's become more regular inquiring or irregular sorry good good one (laughs) i've told the story many times how um how um Whenever there is a um, one of these Antonov 124s, and they're about to do the, uh, you get cleared direct to the point where the uh, the North Atlantic track, your, your your assigned track for the day begins, and uh, they, they, you know, you, you you find out that that it's an Antonov 124. Uh, you do whatever it is that you can do to try to get there first, because otherwise you're stuck flying behind this thing, you know, at uh, 
point seven six or whatever uh, speed these guys do, and it's uh, it's it's not a good day getting stuck behind one of these. The control room <laughs> saying no, it, it kind of constipates the track, aren't they? <laughs> exactly, exactly, it does. <laughs> Constipated track, <laughs> precisely right. Uh, she's full of them today. Full of oh, something. she is. She's on a roll. Yeah, um, I think they've got something that might be able to help. Yeah, yeah a exactly. A toilet roll. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Nick. Um, uh, toward the end of the article here, why exactly are these flights taking place? Neither Proctor and Gamble, who produ- who produces Metamucil, nor Antonov Airlines, have responded to requests for comment on the story. Bulk agricultural commodity commodities in these quantities get um, getting shipped between India and Phoenix would usually make the trip by ship in an intermodal container and then by truck or rail from the coast. The circumstances leading to shipping by air would have to be pretty unusual. There are some stories about the impacts of COVID-19 and severe weather on Indian exports, but it'd be nice to hear from someone with a real scoop. If you have any insights, please reach out and he gives us his uh, email address there. So anybody listening, if you have, if you know what it is, of course, by now, Nick probably already uh, has, has uh, discovered what it is. Uh, but uh, let us know, Nick, if you do find out um, why they're shipping this uh, via air instead of the more normal uh, intermodal kind of uh, shipping. I'm curious, I love, Rick, um, has, has the price of moving air cargo increased during the pandemic or decreased? I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry, Nick. What was that again? It's the price of moving cargo. Is it cheaper now uh, during the? Pandemic? Oh no, no, it's gone. It's gone quite up. It's it's gone up uh, quite a bit actually. Yeah, demand's so, gone yeah, up, I'm, so the I'm, price has gone up. I'm like Nick, uh, my namesake there, wondering why they're shifting this by air unless they got a dire shortage. I have no idea, but uh, yeah. the the price has gone up substantially. It really has, especially yeah. with the with the, with COVID and everything else. So. Uh, but Good again, as you guys. say, why? I mean, it's why? Why? I why use it? Why use air? It must must it must get there? I guess. And I I love uh, I love uh, uh, Micah's uh, suggestions for a show title: regular flying, um, <laughs> <laughs> or irregular stuff. flying. <laughs> All right. Well, Nick, thanks for uh, thanks for being a listener to the show, and uh, thanks You're for welcome. sending in that feedback. Not you, but thank you, Nick <laughs> Anderson, as well for. um well we haven't heard from dana in a while and uh he sent us some audio feedback regarding his 737 operating experience and more so without further ado let's hear what uh dana has to say hello there captain jeff captain nick dr steph captain rick and uh executive producer liz and the rest of the VAPG community, this is Dana. And it uh, looks like um, uh, in my final installment of the uh, training update on my uh, 737 transition and how that all went. And honestly, I'm going to focus a little bit on my OE, but I wanted to spend some time flying the aircraft uh, before I gave my final update because I wanted to see how the aircraft really is and, and what I really think of it. Uh, I'm not going to give a full detailed brief on it because, well, I only have about 10 minutes. I don't want to go too long today. But I'll start off with uh, how my OE trip went. Uh, operation experience, if you're not familiar, an IOE, initial operating experience. Um, and, uh, you know, I got to be honest with you, when you first meet the gentleman you're going to fly with, uh, the f- 
co the the fellow pilot, which happens to be the line check airman, um, and you immediately hit it off. You can tell that it's going to be a great trip. That's exactly what happened. Uh, Jim, uh, who is uh, a line check pilot, uh, gave me my line uh, evaluation. I had a four-day trip. And up until this point, I had never flown uh, so many long legs in my entire career. And it was no exception. My absolute first leg on the uh, 737 was between Atlanta and Los Angeles. Blocked for four hours and 30 minutes. And the seat was uh, four hours and 11 minutes as, uh, as the time would fly from takeoff to the landing. And it was uh, it was a pretty long leg. I hadn't wasn't used to it. However, Jim and I, you know, again hit it off so well that we were getting through all of our required uh, uh, talking points. And certainly, because I was a captain, uh, a lot less talking points other than just talking really about the uh, seven three seven itself. Uh, I continued that day up to Seattle for a nice layover uh you know i'm not gonna go into too much into layovers because well we've all talked about them but that was my first layover in seattle ever um of course with the world upside down uh, the uh seattle area pretty much shut down to be honest with you so it was hard to find anything good to eat and or anything to do but it was uh, certainly very interesting uh to be there because i hadn't been there in so long uh, the ne very next day, I went to Seattle to Boston. That was blocked at 5 hours and 16 minutes, or a total of 5 hours, uh, excuse me, 4 hours and 40 minutes in flight. And that was the longest flight I've ever flown in my entire career as a pilot. And that total mileage, and I'm looking it up right now as I'm looking at it, was... Uh, Two thousand one hundred and ninety-four miles. Once again, four hours and forty minutes. So that was uh, one leg to Boston. Had a really nice layover there. Again, we're talking about general things uh, about the aircraft. Then the ne very next day, went from Boston to Detroit. More on the length of a, of a flight that I'm used to. Um, <clears throat> it was. Uh, just getting back to my schedule here because I want to make sure I've got it right. That was a two-hour and six-minute block flight, uh, roughly about an hour and 45 minutes in the air. Uh, so nice and easy there. Then Detroit to Las Vegas. Again, uh, only overnight Las Vegas once in my career. Uh, actually, all these places I've only been to once in my career except for Boston um, and uh, for an overnight. Las Vegas, uh, Looks like it was 4 hours and 18 minutes. I'm not going to look up the actual flight time, but that's what the block was. And then Las Vegas to Atlanta uh, on the last day. So it was a four-day trip. Two legs the first day, one leg the second day, two legs the last day, and then uh, one leg back to Atlanta and done. That was 3 hours and 48 minutes. So the total flying time I did was two hours and uh, 22 hours and 21 minutes uh, on whopping... Six legs. That's a lot, a lot uh, of airtime that I'm not used to. But I'll be honest with you, uh, it was a very nice trip as far as OE goes, and uh, you know my checkout was was just fine. It went very well. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, no further training was required, and which was a nice thing. Uh, I was expecting actually to at least have two trips, but 
because of my experience and in, in the hours I have with the company, that was not required. So it was a very pleasant surprise. Now, one thing I will say is that one of my biggest disappointments on this whole trip is I was doing all this great flying. I flew from uh, uh, all the way across the country over the Rocky Mountains, up over the Cascade Mountains, up over the Pacific Northwest, all across all across this beautiful country in, uh, of the United States. And, of course, that's when we had the major fires going on. So... Honestly, I didn't see very much of terra firma, the earth, uh, the entire uh, four-day trip. So being that it went so quickly um, and we talked a lot, it really didn't, it made for a uh, very interesting flying instead of being very bored sitting there looking into into oblivion. So that's about it on the OE. Uh, as I said, it's all done. I waited, decided to wait a, a few weeks, actually about a month and now, just coming up on two months now, uh, before I went ahead and uh, gave you an update. You know, I have to admit, the 737 is a very nice flying aircraft, uh, especially in the landing phase. It's it, As far as I'm concerned, compared to the Mad Dog, uh, it's a bit easier to consistently land nicely. Um, it does have its uh, issues that I, I see with the aircraft. Um, I'm not really going to sit here and, and complain about them, because right now, uh, being that uh, the world is where it's at, I'm very fortunate to be uh, in the position I am, flying an aircraft, and uh, want you each to know that I'm thinking of each and every one of you every day um, while I'm at work because, you know, I miss the community and know that you guys are out there. I've had so many of you reach out to me and say, you know, we miss you. Um, how, how have you been doing? How's the aircraft? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, anybody that's reached out to me directly, I've given them a pretty good brief as to what's been going on. I will say this, you know, as far as my comparison to the MD-88 in this aircraft, most people think I'm probably a little crazy. And uh, Rick, for you, Captain Rick, I got to tell you, it's not a Boeing 767 or 57 or 777. This aircraft is based on the 1960s design. And it hasn't really come much further forward from that other than they've stretched the aircraft and uh, they've gone ahead and put really nice, cool avionics in it uh, with those flat screen displays. Um, but I, I got to tell you, some of the automation on the 88, especially systems-wise, and you know, everybody here knows I'm kind of a systems guru, especially about my 88. I got to admit the 737 systems are a bit antiquated in some respects, but... You know, I'm not going to sit here and, and dwell upon, you know, the bad things on this aircraft because, uh, you know, it's it's a nice aircraft. It's done very well for Boeing, for passengers, and for, of course, the people that love to follow the, these crazy things called aviation or airlining, airliners or airplanes, all of us aviation geeks out there. Um, so, all in all, I have to say I'm very satisfied, happy I'm flying the aircraft, and, you know, I'm out and about enjoying uh, enjoying the flying on it, which is very different from everything else I've ever done in my career. As I kind of alluded to on these legs that I've never flown before, well, guess what? I'm continuing to do that because I'm relatively senior. Um, and I, you know, I, I can't say I like transcons. I really can't say I do because it's a lot of sitting for a long period of time. However, I am senior enough that I do have some semblance of my control of my life, um, like kind of like Doctor, I mean, uh, uh, Captain, Captain Jeff, and and someone Captain Nick did. Um, I'm a, you know pretty senior in the right seat, and my quality of flying is is pretty darn good. So there's really no complaints to me there. 
On that note, I want to say uh, a very happy and safe uh, Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Happy holidays, if that's not what you celebrate. Happy Festivus for the rest of us. And to the entire APG community, I miss you very much. Um, I'm always thinking of each and every one of you every day. And know that uh, I'm positive that things are starting to look a little better. At least I hope we can look back and say, 2020, we hate you. And 2021... Here we come because we have nothing to do but look up to the future and hope that things get better for each and every one of us out there. So on that note, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and a very happy, happy, happy New Year to each and every one of you. I'm going to send it back to you, Jeff, in the studio. I hope everybody has a very, very nice day. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dana. Very uh, good to hear from you and uh, get all caught up with uh, the new jet. Doesn't seem entirely enamored with it, but getting on with it, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, very, very nice. It uh, and it's true, Dana. I mean, it's. I mean, you're talking about uh, uh, technology from the early '60s that's been uh, uh, that has um, you know most decidedly evolved. Um, you know, the, you know the, the the pilot airplane interface has certainly gotten a lot better. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's a uh, it it is a uh, an old design, uh, and, and as you know. We all know here it's it's it all goes down to uh, you know dollars and cents. Uh, trying to keep everything on a common uh, type rating and uh, trying to keep the aircraft as uh, as close to the original as possible uh, for fleet commonality purposes and uh, and so um, you know that's uh, that would that's what it goes down to. But it's uh, I've, I've I've never flown the seven thirty seven. Maybe one day I will. Um, but uh, I've heard good things. I've heard good things. People that fly it uh, do love it. I I don't know if I would. Uh, the one thing that I would probably have to get used to is the is, is the sound of the of the trim wheel constantly going off. That uh, <laughs> that's something that I've uh, I've never flown an airplane with a trim wheel, uh, you know, exposed. And every every airplane that I've flown, I know I know that the um, and, and obviously um, Captain Jeff's going to be able to uh, confirm this. The uh, when the stabilizer horizontal stabilizer moves on the mat dog, I don't know if it does in the seven seventeen, but uh, you actually get an, an uh, you know, a bitch and Betty out there going uh, stabilizer in motion, something like that. Is that uh, yeah? It makes a horrible sound first, and then if yeah. it goes for any length of time, then stabilizer trim or stabilizer motion yeah. or something like that. Right, but right, right. That's more irritating to me than you know the seven twenty seven had the same type of uh, trim wheel mo- uh, movement that the seven uh, three has, and and you, you know believe it or not, you just kind of get used to it. Even that obnoxious sound in the uh, in the Mad Dog and the seven one seven, you don't even notice it after a while. Oh, is, really? Yeah. Well, that's because you're deaf by then. Excuse me. What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that? <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you guys saying anything? I can't hear you. I see your mouth is moving, but no, don't hear no, anything. No. Yeah, might have something. I to just do want with to it. say, um, Dana. I haven't talked to him for a little while, so hope he had a happy holiday and great New Year as well. So good to yes. hear from you as always. Absolutely, Absolutely Dana. Happy, happy to hear from you. Just, just call me Rick. Don't call me Captain Rick. Just call me Rick. Find me Rick is fine. Or hey you. Like we you okay, yeah. or hey you or you <laughs> you. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to uh, four from Ray. Recently discovered your podcast and fell in love with it. I listen to it every day whenever I can to catch up, starting from episode one. Oh, you know what that means? 
Uh, I've only mm. just made it to episode 40 with a long way to go yet. One of the topics you explored in one of the episodes I've listened to was language versus uh, situational awareness, specifically when ATCs and pilots are speaking in different languages, leading to the loss of situational awareness for pilots who are not fluent in the local language. I had such an experience in 2009 in Peking. I was a passenger on a United 747-400 operating United Flight 850, a nonstop to Chicago O'Hare. First, some background information. At the time, I was a frequent visitor to Beijing due to work commitments. Consequently, I have become quite familiar with that airport. At that time, United passengers could listen to pilot communications on channel, cabin channel 9. I was a loyal listener. Being an aviation geek and being familiar with the airport, I could follow along with the pilot communication well enough from gate to take off for the most part. In China, most domestic pilots communicated with ATC in Mandarin. Only foreign pilots spoke English. Consequently, foreign pilots were completely dependent on ATC to give them correct instructions to avoid disasters. When you combine this with the fact that much of China's airspace was controlled by the military who were not open to being challenged by mere civilians, you see a truly toxic brew. I had such an experience in 2009 at Peking. Uh, that day, I, 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 that's Peking, right? P-E-K? Okay. Or yes, Beijing. Peking. Beijing, okay. Uh, that day, while taxiing from the gate to the runway to take off, our pilot was given taxiing instructions that would have resulted in us crossing a runway with another plane that had just received takeoff clearance. The taxi instruction to us was given in English. However, the takeoff clearance to the other plane was given in Chinese. I'm fluent in both languages, but I didn't know whether our pilot was or not. As soon as I heard the instruction, I immediately alerted the flight attendant in the jump seat across from me. No sooner had she picked up the phone did I hear our pilot respond, unable, to the ATC and stop the plane on the taxiway. He must have seen the danger, too. The ATC like likely not used to be uh, excuse me the air traffic controller likely not used to being challenged by pilots repeated her instruction in a stern voice the pilot that was given takeoff clearance probably noticed the error too and did not start his takeoff roll however being chinese he did not challenge the air traffic controller meanwhile the air traffic controller repeated her instruction a third time in an even sterner voice to which our pilot responded Unable, I refuse to kill everyone on my aircraft. Ooh. <laughs> By then, a scene had been caused and there was a long line of planes stuck behind us. Finally, a different air traffic controller took over, gave correct directions, and we were in the air. Had our pilot not held his ground or had not seen the other plane on the runway, it could have become Tenerife number two. Long story short, I agree 100% with you that all aviation communication should be made in one and only one language. Thank you. I wish you blue skies, tailwinds, and unlimited visibility. Ray Ng. How do you pronounce NG? Is it Ng? Ng? Okay. That's what I thought. Ray Ng. I think this, uh, that's uh, next generation Ray. Oh, yeah. Ray NG. <laughs> I like it. Next generation. <laughs> New and improved. Very good, Ray. <laughs> yeah, I, I entirely agree with Ray. And I personally think that um, language should be uh, Mongolian. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's not let... Something that that almost none of us will ever be, have yeah, reason to be familiar way, with. That way everyone has to learn and everyone has to have the same level of... Mongolian. Same level of poor proficiency in it. Exactly. Because, yeah. Yep. No, but it's, it's interesting flying, flying in and out of China, doing, doing it so much. Um, actually, at, uh, at Myerland, we have um, a, uh, a set of procedures for operating specifically in Chinese airspace and uh, Chinese airports. And uh, um, one of the things, uh, for example, that we are very, very careful with are um, crossing instructions. Uh, uh, when, when we're clear to cross a runway, an active runway, um, you may be cleared by ATC to cross a runway, but we're not allowed to do it until we call back and actually get uh, confirmation that we are in fact cleared to cross that runway. And um, oftentimes, uh, airports like, uh, like Beijing and, 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 and Pudong in Shanghai, where we operate quite a bit, these are airports that are just huge. And uh, for example, the... the um, the cargo apron and at the Shanghai airport sits on the west side of the airport. And uh, when you take off and you're going to operate a flight uh, to the east, uh, you usually, uh, well, not usually, you almost always will take off from the uh, easterly runways. Uh, runways at uh, Shanghai are uh, uh, 3416, so the north-south runways. Uh, and so... Uh, when you take off and fly, for example, to you know Japan or, or, or over to Anchorage or LA or whatever the case may be, you will always, almost always, have to taxi all the way across the airport and and, and cross uh, three active runways um, before you get to your actual runway. And so it's uh, very important to make sure that uh, you are indeed cleared to cross that runway. And there are other procedures in place where um, you turn your transponder on on traffic. Uh, advisory and resolution advisory uh you look at the the traffic on final to see if if there's in fact you know the the area is clear you switch all your lights on and and when you're clear to cross that runway you make sure that um you don't cross the parallel to that runway if you're not cleared because oftentimes they'll do that they'll they'll clear you to just cross one runway and not the other one so you have to be very careful not to cross both runways if you're not cleared if you're only being cleared to cross one so uh, add to that the fact that uh some of these controllers are not the easiest to understand, and uh, you can you can find yourself in trouble very very quickly. So uh, it behooves you to take things very very calmly and uh, methodically and slow. So, absolutely, it's an interesting uh, thing that Ray was able to listen to both sides of the conversation. That would normally be extremely rare um, because I don't think I've never met a pilot who can speak Mandarin yet. They're obviously, lost Chinese pilots. Yeah, they can probably just all the, all the Chinese. In, in well, not experience. all the Chinese, but the Chinese pilots who grew up speaking Mandarin. Probably yeah, speak exactly. Because well actually, there are not a lot of fluently. Chinese dialects. Um, but um, I, I have come across a lot of military pilots. The military pilots tend to be uh, the guys you come uh, across. Uh, en route, so they're controlling large sectors. Once you get into the uh, airport environment, you're usually speaking to civilians. So, um, but that doesn't change the um, point you made that some of them can be quite autocratic, uh, a bit like going to New York's JFK, I would say. <laughs> Interesting. Well. <laughs> I, well, uh, I was going to say, is, is, is there is there a story behind that comment there, Dave? 
<laughs> oh, Personal many, experience, many, perhaps, or hypothetical <laughs> <laughs> stories from friends. Yeah, no. I've heard. Um, I was just thinking it was interesting because I we just had this conversation or very similar conversation not that many episodes ago about the same theme or topic came up and this was someone who was listening back to episode forty so it's certainly something that's yep. comes up from time to time and is going to continue to be. Um, something that can be an issue so long as people of the world speak different languages. And uh, yeah. this particular situation is one of the reasons why I'm in such favor of implementing the runway status lights um, mm -hmm. that are autonomous lighting systems that uh, are embedded in the pavement of runways and taxiways. And they turn automatically turn red when other traffic uh, are in certain positions and, you know, just, and it's completely, not controlled at all by air traffic control. So uh, just in case they make some kind of a human error, clear for somebody for takeoff when they may sh probably shouldn't have. Uh, and that would prevent uh, a situation like this from occurring. So looks like we have about 20 airports in the U.S. that are uh, have these uh, systems installed, and I'm hoping that they'll install them in all the big airports. No, I, I absolutely love that system. It's just, uh, you know, no guesswork whatsoever. Glad to write, you can't no, go. And no, it's, I uh, think it's, it's brilliant. I, the only problem with it, of course, is it's damned expensive. Yeah. Because yeah. you've got, basically got to install a brand new set of lights in every runway and every adjoining, adjoining taxiway, hmm. uh, which is, you know, I, I, I have a feeling that a damn great big searchlight <laughs> One searchlight pointing at each at each junction might have done the job, but uh, we've gone for the really sophisticated version, which works fine. And they're prettier. Yeah. Uh, they are indeed prettier. It's like watching a little Christmas tree light yeah. up in front of you. Oh, look at that. Interesting. Well, yeah. while we talk about uh, runway incursions um, on, um, I forget, one of my 747 um, recurrents, uh, we had a little bit extra time at the end of a session. Obviously, things went well, thankfully. And uh, the 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 simulator instructor um, was a um, a former uh, Air Force One guy, and he told us about a um, a maneuver that they practice where uh, uh, you know you'll have you'll have Air Force One or or, or the seven forty seven. Uh, let me uh, guess. Uh, let me guess. They're like the um, chauffeur drivers that can do a one eighty on the handbrake <laughs> and then go roaring off in the opposite direction. Go the up. No, very, very, very close. But it's oh. it, it's actually I, I find it even 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 more interesting. So what they do is so they'll 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 have an airplane um, uh, ahead. You know, I'm trying to block uh, uh, block Air Force One's uh, um, uh, takeoff run. And so what they'll do is they'll go from um, from takeoff flap, which on the seven four is uh, either flap ten or twenty, usually flap twenty, and then they'll go from flap twenty all the way to flap thirty, and this will cause the airplane to balloon and um, and stay in ground. So th that'll that'll be just enough to to go over the top if if things work out fine over the top of the aircraft that's crossed uh, that's across the runway, and that'll keep the airplane in ground effect until you get fast enough. To be able to fly out of ground effect and fly away safely, and uh, he he demonstrated it, and it, it, it was uh, it was quite the interesting maneuver. Well, and, that's, uh, that is intriguing. I had um, no idea that, uh, that that's something that they did. I'll have to so try that on my next trip. Yeah. See how that works on the. Uh, yeah. Let us exactly. know how that goes. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Apparel.com. 
<laughs> Captain Nielsen's last one. Acme 717. <laughs> um, <laughs> Simon will have a field day with that one. Uh, that's cool. All right. Well, Ray, thank you very much for listening to the show. I'm glad you love it. And uh, good luck with your uh, APG syndrome. Um, we're, we're working on a cure, but we haven't found it yet. Um, Muhammad sent us some. Uh, he was in the chat room. Oh, was yeah, he? Had That's to go right. Earlier. He had to leave. Um, it's uh, yeah, yeah, time zone's got the better of him. Like really late. Late. Yeah. He is a uh, trainee, uh, Iraqi aerodrome air traffic controller, uh, requesting some advice, and uh, he sent us in some audio feedback. So let's take a listen. Hello, Captain Jeff. Hello, Captain Nick. I am Mohammed from Al Iraq, Baghdad. I am uh, very pleased and very happy to be in touch with you guys. I will brief you about me a little bit. I'm working in Baghdad International Airport, Oscar Romeo Bravo, India, as air traffic controller. And I'm now trainee air traffic controller. I trained by uh, Circo Group PLC because uh, in Baghdad they have a partnership with the general company aviation navigation, GCANS in Iraq. And uh, based on this partnership, they are the Circo company, which is a British company. I think you know them. Uh, they are uh, responsible to hire and uh, to filter the people who are fitting to be an air traffic controller. I started the career in 2017 with the training courses. Then after that, I become an aerodrome control uh, tower uh, controller in Baghdad International Airport, and I am a trainee uh, on the ground position of the airport. I'm working to improve my English skills. Uh, I, I know because my instructor uh, in, in Circo, he said it's, it's not about to be a native in English as it's about to understand what the pilot uh, demands or what the pilot requests from you as a controller. It's not about to be, uh, because English here, it's um, our second language. So I will admit I have difficulties to improve my English skills. English is very important. The English language is very, very, very important in the aviation field. And I'm doing my best. Uh, the second issue is I'm trying to get much wider knowledge about aviation field. It is something the aviation it's something uh, amazing and uh, i think it's a hidden treasure no one knows the the value of this treasure and that's why i'm beginning to looking for podcast books magazines and that's how i find you guys and i am very happy and pleased to listen to your podcast i'm all uh, i when I driving to the my workplace, I always uh, use the podcast uh, to listen and to get more knowledge. Nice to meet you guys again, and thank you very much. Much love and respect to you from Iraq, Baghdad, Muhammad Furqan. Wow, Muhammad, awesome feedback, and your English is great. I understood every single thing that you said there. Absolutely, and uh, lovely um, use of 
the language in that you're not using basic words, you're using words that um, are, you know, are perfectly, um, well, actually, they're words that uh, not a lot of English people would necessarily choose because they're, uh, they're uh, quite... Um, what's the word I'm looking for, Jeff? Sophisticated or... Are <laughs> you having a hard um, time finding words in English, Nick? Thank yeah. you. Yes, I am. Yeah. I'm having trouble with my own language. I apologize. Yeah, Mohammed, uh, send some feedback to, to help Captain Nick here. Uh, think of the right <laughs> word. Uh, I'm sure you'd be able you know, to... I used uh, to fly through that <laughs> quite regularly. Uh, I, sadly, we probably won't have speak, spoken since you're, you're currently uh, only learning uh, ground. But uh, it would have been great to have actually had a chance to chat. But there you go, mm. Probably won't ever now. Well, uh, I, I can I can tell you, ATC services through Iraq are just fantastic. Uh, we we regularly fly over Iraq on our way to uh, Kuwait and um, uh, you know the UAE and other places down there in the uh, in the Persian Gulf, and uh, their uh, their ATC services are just you know great, you know world. Uh, uh, world standard i guess so uh, mm-hmm. you know, nothing but good things to say about them yeah i just say i love i really loved your feedback muhammad it was um nice to hear you talk about aviation as kind of a hidden treasure or hidden gem um you know i think a lot of us still feel that way about aviation even though we've been around it for a long time and it's nice to see people who are just getting started in their careers with it and still have a lot of the sense of wonder and uh, it doesn't matter what side of flying you're on whether it's pilot air traffic control you know just working in aviation in general um and we're really glad to have you as part of the community so i know we'll all learn a lot from each other going forward and the only recommendation that we can really strongly make is just stay away from other aviation podcasts such as opposing bases because <laughs> that'll just do nothing but confuse you no actually yeah, and does abracadabra really open the door i'm just curious mm, well that will have to be private email sent to Nick regarding that. Um, but actually somebody had told me, I think Liz told me that, um, Muhammad uh, earlier in the chat room, um, you know, we had given him the advice to, uh, listen to opposing bases, um, air talk. And, uh, he, uh, he did, and he's so glad that he was given that uh, advice from us. So way to go. Awesome. Yeah. But the, uh, to be fair, the well, use of English is basic well, yeah, in the extreme. True. So I, I wouldn't Sketchy, listen yeah. them too closely. <laughs> Uh, who you? Yeah. Particularly RH. <laughs> uh, Particularly, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, just take that with a you know a little bit of caution. Well, you know, you you learn things from people that do things the right way, and you learn things from people that do things the wrong way. So, you know, That's there's always something true, to be learned. Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just kidding. We all know about RH. Picking up their significant sarcasm. <laughs> throw yes. that out there. Oh man. Okay. Anyway, okay, I think we'll be able to get one more in before the plane tail. Let's see, Joe. Said the actress yes, to the bishop. Yes, I, I knew that was coming. Said the actress <laughs> to the bishop. Um, bam. Uh, Joe says, hey guys, due to my home's close proximity to O'Hare Airport, which is directly under the approach path of planes lifting off over my house, depending on the wind, I regularly check my FlightAware app to see who is going where. On December 27th, I noticed this Qantas 747 traveling from O'Hare to JFK, which struck me as odd. I'm an av geek and plane spot is a hobby and don't claim to know much about airline operations. 
although I vaguely remember reading that Qantas was retiring their 747 fleet months ago and believe you all spoke about it in previous shows. He's right. I'm assuming this would be a cargo-only flight or a farewell U.S. flight as the Queen of the Skies signs off from the States. If you guys have any insight on this flight, I'm very curious to know. I'd love to see it uh, if it is a normal cargo route. I'm a huge fan of the show and keep it up as the best podcast around. And again, that's Joe Meredith. He says tailwinds and all that stuff. Um, Ooh, I know the answer, but I think we can probably explain this a whole lot okay. better than me. I have, I no, have go ahead, Steffi. I'll, I'll just, uh, oh. I'll just uh, supplement whatever you He'll want. Just so first of all, I'm going to say, I'm going to guess that it was probably typical Chicago weather on the day when um, you took this screenshot, Joe, and perhaps you were not able to see the aircraft uh, visually or directly. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in Chicago. I know how the weather is in December. It's often overcast and low overcast. Um, so you may have noticed that it probably did not have Qantas livery. It was probably being operated by a different operator. Am I correct in my assumptions so far there, Rick? Very much so. Ah, okay. This I'll is what we call an ACMI operation, aircraft uh, crew maintenance and insurance uh, type arrangement where you operate an aircraft um, on behalf of uh, someone else. Basically, in this particular case, uh, Qantas hires out uh, to an ACMI carrier uh, to fly their cargo around. And, um, and uh, uh, O'Hare is a big hub for a Qantas cargo. In fact, uh, when I was on the 747, the particular route I used to do all the time was uh, uh, O'Hare to uh, Honolulu and then Honolulu down to Sydney uh, with uh, all Qantas freight. And uh, the outfit that I fly for uh, has, uh, I believe, two dedicated uh, 747-8s flying um, this, uh, only for uh, for Qantas. Qantas freight, they upgraded from the Dash 400 to uh, the Dash 8, and that's what they're flying now. So uh, that's uh, that's probably, uh, well, more than probably what you saw there. Very cool. Good detective work. Well done, guys. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there you go, Joe. You came to the right place. We answered your question with at least 50% certainty. At least. Yes. And, yeah, probably closer to 100% in this case. All right. That, With, I think that one was pretty spot on. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. We can I be pretty so. confident okay. in our answer so there. We'll do a double 50% on that one. There you go. Ding, ding. Ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Liz. Well, it was several times. Wow, it was just flashing back and forth. Wow. Oh, the things you miss if you're not watching the video. <laughs> Trust me, you're what, not missing anything. flashing back and forth. Yeah, flashing things going on. <laughs> Oh. Is the time for plain tales yet? Yeah, it is right yeah, now. I think so. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yes, you're right, Steph. It is that time of uh, the show, the best part of the show, which is, of course, the old pilot's plain tales. Here we go. The old pilot's plain tales. 101 seconds. It was on the very first day of 1978 when the Air India 747 started up and taxied out for a departure from Mumbai's Chhatrapati International Airport, then called Bombay Santa Cruz. On board the aircraft, named the Emperor Ashoka, 
were 190 passengers and 23 crew, including the experienced flight crew, who had amassed over 33,000 flight hours between them. It was the second time that they had tried to depart, as their first attempt had been brought to a halt when it was discovered that the Boeing's number one engine wasn't responding to throttle movements. They taxied back to their parking position, and engineers came on board to look at the fault, which was cured in only a few minutes, but the delay that they incurred ensured that they were going to depart in the dark. Had they taken off just a little earlier, even in the dying half-light of sunset, it's doubtful that any of us would know about Air India Flight 855, let alone want to talk about it. Having fixed the engine problem, the aircraft was in good shape, and there was nothing to suggest that this wouldn't be a routine flight. Many of the passengers on board were heading out to the oil-rich Gulf states to take up jobs there and were leaving families and loved ones behind so that they could earn good wages to send back to India. The Boeing 747 they were in was one of the most exciting airliners of the time as it had opened up air travel to the masses when previously it was the purview of the well-heeled jet set those who could afford to fly. The Dash 200 variant had come onto the market in 1971, and Air India was an early customer, acquiring Victor Tango, Echo Bravo Delta, in March of that year. The aircraft was named after the Mauryan ruler, Emperor Ashoka, and was the first in a fleet of several Maharaja-themed luxury airliners that Air India had acquired in the 1970s. They were advertised as Your Palace in the Sky and featured the classic window outlines that symbolised the palaces of the Maharajas. This new theme was first used on the Emperor Ashoka aircraft, which introduced the Jaroka window, prevalent in the architecture of Rajasthan, which came from an Indo-Islamic design. The feature juts forward from a stone wall, giving beauty to a window opening and shade to a room, but more importantly, it served to allow women to see outside without being seen themselves. The design had been painted around the outside of each of the aircraft's windows. In the first-class cabin, the sumptuous lounge was an indication of why this aircraft was the pride of the Air India fleet. It had been designed by the Art Studio of Bombay in collaboration with the Art Department of Air India. Comprising rich tapestries and art that drew contemporary designs from ancient Indian motifs, the interior was known as the most exotic and luxurious cabin in the sky, featuring cocktail bars and epitomizing the idea of the golden age of travel. It introduced patrons to art from the Gupta period. The murals in the lounge were adapted from the celebrated frescoes of the Ajanta Caves in Maharashtra, illustrating scenes from the Jakarta Tales. 
Now, seven years later, the aircraft was still in great condition and would, in the normal course of events, have had many years of flying ahead of it. The captain that day was an experienced 51-year-old with 18,000 hours of flying. He had been with the company for 22 years, and to have become a captain on Air India's most prestigious fleet shows that his career had been very successful. His flight engineer was also a senior man. Indeed, he had been with the company longer than the captain, and had 11,000 hours. The first officer was the junior man on the flight deck that day, but he had come from a very successful career in the Indian Air Force, where he rose to the rank of wing commander. During his time there, he had commanded two squadrons, number 41, a de Havilland DHC-3 Otter squadron, and number 48, which flew the Fairchild Packet C-119 flying boxcar. So he was hardly new to the world of aviation. In the cabin were the young and beautiful cabin crew. The girls were single and dressed in glamorous saris. At that time, there were strict rules concerning age, weight, and marital status of the female cabin crew. And the men in smart suits, and they'd prepared their 190 passengers for takeoff and taken their seats. In the cockpit, all the pre-takeoff checks had been completed, and the first officer had acknowledged the takeoff clearance, a standard instrument departure, climbing to 8,000 feet, to call passing 2,400 and expecting flight level 310. The runway in use was 27, the end of which was just over a mile, a couple of kilometres, from the west coast of India. And as they lined up to depart, in front of them was the dark expanse of the Arabian Sea, which they had to cross to reach their destination, Dubai. The captain pushed up the throttles of his Pratt & Whitney JT-90 engines and the vast aircraft began to accelerate down the runway. The first officer made his standard speed call-outs until the captain rotated the aircraft to lift the nose wheel at about 145 knots and they took to the air. With a call of positive rate, the captain called for the gear to be raised and as they climbed out, the few coastal lights that had been visible had disappeared below the nose. In front of them was the inky black darkness of the night sky. A change of frequency, and the crew of Air India made their final transmission, acknowledging their new climb instructions. Good evening to you, sir. Air India 855 will report leaving 80. The captain was hand-flying the aircraft, and he smoothly, and with minimal aileron input, gently rolled the big machine into a 14-degree bank turn to the right in order to pick up the correct heading for the instrument departure. As he approached the desired compass heading, over the next 13 seconds, he relaxed his pressure on the ailerons to wings level. Up to that point, all had been quiet, orderly and calm, the captain's flying smooth and controlled. Everything had been progressing as expected. The crew and passengers had no idea that, for them, a clock was ticking down. 
It had started as the captain pushed up the throttles, and it only had 101 seconds to run. It wasn't a real clock. It wasn't a timer attached to some terrorist bomb. It was a clock that only you and I can hear as the story unfolds. But it has already reached 87 seconds and has a mere 14 seconds left to run. As the captain eased the pressure on his control yoke, the 747 slowly rolled back to wings level, but then continued past, to the point until the left wing was nine degrees down. At this time, his smooth handling ceased, as he put an abrupt input into the controls first left, and then right, and finally hard left, followed by a rudder input to the left as well, that would have exacerbated his application of left aileron. As the aircraft rolled through 32 degrees of left bank, he exclaimed, What's happened here? My instruments! With the captain's control inputs undiminished, the big airliner continued to roll, and from a height of a little less than 1,500 feet above the black ocean, they reached 47 degrees of left bank. In reply to the captain's comment, the first officer replied, My, uh, mine's also, his words were garbled, possibly, he said, toppled, looks fine. The pilots were referring to their attitude indicators, the instruments that, without being able to see the real horizon, give a representation of where it would be and how the aircraft was orientated. Each pilot has his own cluster of independent instruments, in the centre of which is the all-important attitude indicator. It has pride of place, since it is the most often referred to. However, because the aircraft's attitude is so important, there is a third standby attitude indicator, a backup, that is independent of the other two, positioned a short distance to the right of the captain's main instruments, but easily visible to both pilots. From his seat, in between those of the pilots, the flight engineer had a good overall view of the main instrument panel, and was the first to realise exactly what the problem was. He tells his captain, Don't go by that one, don't go by that one almost certainly indicating the captain's attitude indicator, but the pilot's reaction was to add more aileron and rudder to what was already a severe angle of bank. The flight had a mere six seconds of time remaining. The captain called, Check your instruments, to which his first officer replied, Mine has also toppled. But the flight engineer, who has correctly assessed the situation, interjects, No but, go by this, Captain, probably pointing at the standby instruments. All the time that the aircraft had been flying with increasing bank angles, the lift that the wings were creating to keep the huge machine aloft was tilting further and further away from the vertical, 
the nose was dropping, the speed increasing, and the small separation that they had from the sea was reducing at an alarming rate. As the altimeters wound down towards zero, the captain called, Just check the instrument! But whatever action he wanted his crew to perform, it was far too late. At 101 seconds, the first officer was replying, Check what? when his voice was drowned out as the pride of the Air India fleet smashed into the Arabian Ocean, 35 degrees nose down, with 108 degrees of left bank and a speed of 330 knots. It's probable that all on board died at the moment of the crash, as the deceleration from the impact would have been fatal. Either that or drowning would soon have occurred. Regardless of the cause of death, all 213 souls on board perished. At the time, it was the deadliest air accident that India had ever suffered, and to date, it remains the second worst. The wreckage was in fairly shallow water, around 25 feet below the surface, and Navy ships were dispatched to search for survivors, a search that soon turned into a recovery of the deceased. Soon after the wreckage of the Emperor Ashoka was brought up from the ocean, the authorities were able to discount foul play, a theory that had been popular in the press and after analysis of the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder, a more robust theory came to light. The investigation centred around the captain's main attitude indicator, which appeared to have failed during the first gentle right turn after takeoff. It continued to indicate the right bank, even after the captain had rolled out of the turn, gone past wings level and banked to the left, he appeared to have noticed the problem as he indicated from his initial statement to the crew that something had happened to his instruments. This should have been an easily resolved situation. When faced with a fault with his instruments, he should have handed control to his first officer whilst he assessed the problem. A quick comparison of his main attitude indicator against the standby instrument would have shown a discrepancy, and it should then have been a simple matter to resolve the conflict using his other instruments. The compass and rate of turn indicator would have quickly revealed which instrument was faulty, even if his main attitude indicator wasn't showing a red fault flag. Then it should have been a simple matter of selecting his main attitude indicator to one of the two alternative gyro sources ideally the centre inertial gyros, or if they were unavailable, then to the same source as his first officer, the right side system. Either way, having realised that his primary attitude information was suspect, then from that moment on he should have ignored it. In addition, it should have been equally simple for the first officer to have compared his attitude indicator against the standby, and having proved to himself that his was operating satisfactorily, then he should have prevented his captain from continually rolling the aircraft to such an excessive bank angle that he put everyone into danger. 
Certainly, the communication between the crew was far from obvious. The captain's first question concerning his instruments didn't clearly state the problem or what he wanted his crew to do. The first officer's reply was also ambiguous in the extreme, first stating that his AI was toppled and then that it was fine. There certainly didn't seem to be the urgency in their conversation that would have been appropriate as they overbanked and started their descent into the ocean below. The likelihood of disorientation is an added factor that almost certainly affected the captain's performance. Gentle turns won't register with the pilot's sensory organs held within the semicircular canals, so as far as the balance organs are concerned, they were still straight and level. Pilots are taught to rely on their instruments when their bodies tell them lies. The big main attitude indicator in front of the captain that, for decades he had relied on, was now giving him false readings. That, combined with the confusing signals that he would have felt from his balance organs once he started rapidly putting roll inputs in, would have made things worse. One thing is for sure. Despite recognizing an instrument problem, the uncoordinated crew actions and the lack of disciplined problem-solving led to their downfall. Officially, the cause was put down to Irrational control inputs by the captain following complete unawareness of the attitude as his AI had malfunctioned. The crew failed to gain control based on the other flight instruments. Sadly, as I mentioned at the start of this tragic story, had the crew departed on their original timing, there might just have been enough light remaining for the captain to see the real horizon in front of him and recognize the failure he was facing, thereby dodging the awful outcome. There was one final twist to this story which makes me wonder about it. A court case taken out in New York against the aircraft manufacturer Boeing and the instrument maker Leah Siegler attempted to prove that there was a design fault in the aircraft instruments which prevented warning failures from being displayed. In reply, Boeing's lawyers said that the crash had been caused by the incompetence of the crew and that only intimidation of potential witnesses had prevented confirmation of previous charges that the captain had been drinking the night before the fatal flight to celebrate the arrival of the year 1978. Wow, what a tragedy. You're a master storyteller, you are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Amazing. <laughs> wow, well done. I can, uh, I can, I can, I can see the whole thing unfolding. Yeah, the music and, and the clock fantastic. ticking. I mean, wow, you've outdone wow. yourself. You're very kind, but it, it's a story that uh, my father... Oh, am I going out on two things? I can hear an echo. Yeah, it's... Um, Sounds like you have a speaker. I, on. It's a story that my father um, told me about. Uh, he was very annoyed. He was very upset by um, what had happened to this aircraft uh, because basically, I think 
he considered this to have been a relatively easy problem to resolve. But, you know, they got airborne and within a very short time had flown their beautiful 747 into the ocean. Uh, and he found that hard to understand. He was a training captain on 747s at the time. So, yeah, it, it brought it back to memory, and I didn't realize it was on the 1st of January until quite recently, so I saved it up for this very show. Well, perfect. Perfect mm-hmm. timing. Yeah, I mean, that's just one of those things that you just should automatically do when you're sensing that something's not right with your instrumentation. Look at the other pilot's instruments to see if they are jiving with what you're looking at and then look at that standby that's that's life-saving yeah and it's uh, i mean uh, it's a lot easier to uh, to diagnose nowadays because uh um in um modern aircraft whenever there's a a uh, a discrepancy between the the captains and the uh first officer's uh, uh adi or attitude direction indicator you'll immediately get uh, an ICAS, at least on Boeing aircraft, an ICAS uh, uh, advisory letting you know that there's an attitude disagree. And so the thing to do uh, right after that is to go and, and, and consult the uh, standby uh, attitude indicator, um, which has uh, its own uh, source of uh, attitude, for attitude information. Uh, the older um, ADIs have their own uh, uh, gyra um, that's contained in the instrument case, and uh, the newer type uh, integrated flight uh, integrated IS, IF, ISFDs integrated standby flight displays uh, obviously have also their own uh, <laughs> their own uh, source for attitude information, uh, completely uh, separate from uh, any other um, system on board uh, for that very reason. You need to have something that's um, uh, independent from any other system that you can rely on. So, um, yeah, uh, it's a small sad world because uh, Rick. I'm, I'm, I'm um, sorry. Go because ahead. when I uh, did my competency, my flying skills checkout uh, before joining uh, Virgin Atlantic, I had to do it in a 747 uh, 200 sim, mm. and. Um, during this short 20 or 30 minute flying period, um, they gave me a main AI failure. Mm. Um, so, and uh, I, I transferred to the standby instruments, and I was busily flying this 747 around a holding pattern on the standby instruments. And the training captain, he said, You're ex military, aren't you? I said, Yeah, yeah. I said, And it's not a very easy scan, this, is it? <laughs> <laughs> you realize there are two pilots on this airplane and i went ah oh, yeah. <laughs> like why are you trying to make it simple for me i'm trying to show you yeah, my, exactly. yeah, my skills here skills i was showing off show you my skills <laughs> yeah. no but uh, but but interestingly enough on uh on uh on every aircraft i've ever flown uh the 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 set of standby instruments are closer to the captain's side um so that uh, if this happens, obviously the the, the captain has a clear um, uh, a picture of what's going on, and obviously that's what you you know you'd, you'd want you'd want the captain to take over because he has a better view of the instruments there. If if and and that is only if they're able to um, to determine that that is in fact 
the issue they're dealing with. Now, um, sadly for this crew, uh, this happened right after, right after rotation and, you know, the dark of night. And as Nick said, uh, had they taken off a little bit earlier, they would have had a bit of a horizon to, uh, refer to, but they didn't in this case. Uh, and so quite sad. Um, I was I, I was talking to Nick a little while ago about uh, when he was preparing this, and, and an accident came to mind. A um, another one, very much like this one. Uh, this was a a, a Panamanian a Copa Airlines seven thirty seven uh, that had an, an issue with a um, the the source of agent information for the captain's uh, ADI, but this happened to them en route. So uh, as Nick pointed out. And exactly right. Uh, they would have had a you know a lot more time to diagnose what the issue was uh, for these for these guys in the uh, Air India Seven Four. It was they were dealt a very very tough hand in trying to trying to diagnose and pull this out of so close to the ground is you know very 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 hard. You know the um, irony of the way the captain was flying the airplane very very smoothly actually made it even worse you know by just making that nice slow bank to 14 hard to degrees. detect the end of that turn where it yeah. ends i mean that's you know what we're all usually shooting for you know smoothness and everything else but you know in this case it probably would have helped a little bit at least if he had been a little bit more abrupt and then maybe he would have recognized the the issue even earlier but uh, i don't know yeah, there's no doubt he uh, became quite badly disorientated. It's just sad that he, the rest of his crew, I don't know whether at that time in India there was a really bad um, um, command gradient uh, mm. that prevented his crew from uh, um, stopping this very senior captain from uh, doing what he did. But hopefully that with education, that is much less likely to happen nowadays. Yeah, and then also remember that uh, I mean, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but um, going back to your your instrument flying, you have your primary support instruments, and if you you know if you're you're in a bank, then uh, obviously your your heading's going to change, and so um, that's part of your scan. But then again, if the primary, the, I guess the, the the center point of your scan is faulty at first, then the, the hard thing really is to diagnose that correctly. And then number two, apply uh, the necessary corrections to pull yourself out of that situation. So that's why that's why they call the um, the flight engineer seat or the the seat in the back uh, between the two pilots the smart seat because yeah. uh, you have you know the you have the entire picture, the big picture of what's going on. And from experience, I can tell you in the simulator when you're presented with a situation that. Uh, requires all of your concentration you get the you know every pilot happens to absolutely every one of us we get the you know the worst case of tunnel vision you know yep. you mm-hmm. you completely shut down uh, trying to figure yep. out what the hell's going on test saturation is a real thing oh yeah yep and you fixate on things you know it's mm-hmm. hard to mm-hmm. see anything else mm. yeah that's right fantastic nick by the way just yeah great great stuff I think it's a classic uh, accident, actually, that we can all still learn from, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I really like the 
really like the uh, stadium effect that you're using right now when with your yeah, voice. For added <laughs> dramatic effect. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Did you turn on speakers at all? No, you, I've, you must I've have changed, changed something. I've turned everything down except the minimum, and I seem to have this awful echo. I apologize. <laughs> okay. Not sure why. I'll, I'll try leaving and come back while you discuss something else. Okay. All right. Uh, control room tells us we have about 35 minutes remaining in the show. So let's move on to uh, item seven from Mike. Uh, he said, uh, this very cool link was sent to me recently. Apparently a guy from Scotland took the pictures in 1968 and recently had them colorized. And so now I'm going to go over here and share a screen. And that way I can share these images with you all. And uh, can you see that all right on the screen? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, from Davis Monthan. It's a huge, um, the website's called Neil's Nostalgia. And uh, this happens to be one of the many, many pages um, on this Plain Spotters uh, website. And uh, it's Davis Monthan. And I looked through here, was reading through here to see if, if, you know, what more information about the fact that uh, these things were colorized, but I didn't, I didn't see that, but we'll just have to take Mike Smith's word for it. Um, I don't know, maybe a, an expert photographer like Nick can tell if these were originally black and whites that were colorized or not, but. Uh, well, so. I'm only just going by the colors of the orange is there uh, a little bit even mm-hmm. um, the rest of it. I mean, colorizing nowadays is pretty sophisticated. It's very hard to, tell but the fact that we've got some black and white ones there and yeah. some color ones mixed in i would suggest they have been but uh very interesting yeah it's almost like the the orange in uh like these are almost too bright you know mm-hmm. yeah. like they'd be more faded right they would be and dirtier um yeah so. anyway uh some really Still, uh, 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 I, ha- I have to say that colorizing these old pictures uh sort of brings them into um the current day, mm-hmm. so that it's really odd to see all these wacky, what we would consider at the time they were state-of-the-art, mm-hmm. wacky aeroplanes, but looking like they've just been built or whatever. You know, yeah. it's quite incredible. Mm-hmm. Because KC-97 uh, Stratotanker um, double-hole design, that was a pretty cool airplane. Um, uh, yeah, very, yeah. Lots yeah. of interesting... Uh, photos here i mean i'm not gonna take you through the whole thing because i'm just barely you know making a dent in the uh, many many pages and many hundreds of pictures that are uh in this particular division of the website alone so we'll put did a, you uh, have the super constellation earlier uh yeah i think so yeah it was further up i saw uh, mm-hmm. let's see yeah. that and then before that the b47 right you there. know i uh formate there, there we go you know uh, it wasn't quite one of those. Uh, I formatted on one of those with an airborne early warning radar on it when I was oh, in wow. a Phantom once. Wow. They were still in service. Kind of an, the early AWACS, I guess? Exactly. Just before okay. the um, the 707, you know, mm-hmm. fuselage with AWACS uh, radar mounted on it, So, uh, which was Sentry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, e, uh, the E3. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, uh, the guy, the captain, whoever was on the radio, I don't know, uh, said, uh, could I f- come up on the right-hand side? Uh, and normally when you intercept an aircraft, you come up on the left. 
Uh, but, you know, I agreed to come up on the right-hand side, and I came up and beamed them. And um, the first officer, or the co-pilot with military aircraft, uh, took off uh, the headset and shook out this huge mane of blonde hair. <laughs> <laughs> it was the first lady pilot. Oh, wow. I think military pilot I think I'd ever seen. And I was going, oh, wow. <laughs> That's Man, impressive. That guy has a beautiful head of hair. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you guys don't Fabio. have many uh, haircut you know, regulations, do you? That's <laughs> Fabio flying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. But it was, uh, you know, it was one of those strange things. You know, we were a couple of hundred miles north of uh, Scotland, way out in the middle of nowhere. And here I was looking at this beautiful blonde. Where'd you go, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That's why Liz said Echo's gone, but then I was like, also now, Nick is gone. Nick is, his picture's gone, too. He's picture in picture. Uh, yeah, at the I'll very, be back yeah, in a got, second. Got, got got a oh, there you are. I see you now. Just a very tiny little Nick. That's what she said. There we go. Am I better now? Yes. Yes. All right. Um Very good. Thank you, Mike, for sending the link. And again, if you want to check out those... Uh, colorized pics from the 60s uh head over to the uh, show notes on the airline pilot guy website um talked about greg peterson earlier and seeing him in a in, in the atl um last week and he i said why don't you send us some uh, audio feedback and he goes i think i will so take it away greg hey abg crew it's your big ass fan greg peterson here on uh APG 454, uh, Jeff was talking about the fact that I was going to be a passenger on his turn from Atlanta to Chicago on uh, December 29th, uh, but apparently uh, that morning Acme crew scheduling uh, decided they had different plans for him and sent him to uh, Newark instead of to Chicago. Um, I still ended up taking the trip, the turn from Atlanta to Chicago and back, um, and when we got back to Atlanta, uh, Jeff and I met up for a little dinner, and we didn't record anything, But uh, so I thought I'd take a stab at sending in some uh, audio feedback for the first time. Um, something interesting that I'd noticed on our final approach into Chicago, um, uh, the planes were landing from the west that day, and uh, we had came in from the east, uh, flew about 30 miles west of Chicago and made the turn for the final approach. After we made the turn, I noticed the uh, the plane was flying with a pretty nose-high pitch. Uh, it seemed unusually high. Uh, so I got out my phone, uh, brought up the level app, laid it on the floor of the plane and just to see uh, what, we were, what we were looking at. And uh, for a good portion of the approach, we were flying with about a 10 to 15 degree um, nose high um, attitude. And uh, when we got back to Atlanta, I mentioned it to Jeff and asked him if that was uh, normal for them to fly that nose high in the in the MD-95. And he said for him it wasn't, uh, just because one, it, uh, the passengers find it weird to be flying that nose high, and also it reduces his visibility out the uh, cockpit windows. Uh, so I'd be interested to hear um, what uh, Rick and Nick have to say about that. Um, the, 
I assumed that the reason we were doing that was to maintain speed um, on the final approach. Uh, they had the uh, pilots had the slats extended, but did not have the flaps out yet. Uh, and then uh, once they dropped the gear and extended the flaps, uh, we dropped back down to a normal like two to three degree uh, uh, pitch angle. So uh, just be interested to hear what you guys have to say. Um, love the show. Thanks very much for all you guys do. Um, have a good one. Thanks, Greg. Uh, again, great to see you in Atlanta, both uh, that morning and later on that day for uh, dinner. And as he mentioned, we he discussed that with me, and uh, and I mentioned that uh, I don't like flying around patterns, um, you know, with minimal uh, configuration uh, just to save a couple of ounces of fuel because I think it's. For me, it's a safety issue, uh, being that nose high and being able to clear for other airplanes. I like to be able to have the nose down a bit, um, but that's uh, that's me. But uh, what, what would you say about that? Um, I think he both asked uh, Rick and Nick regarding as far as yeah, airline. I mean, I, I, you know. I agree with you. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's... <sighs> It all depends on obviously the, the 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 flap setting that you're flying around in um, on the I guess the 747 your uh, your flap uh, setting that uh, the flap setting that I would use um, maneuvering around the TMA uh, really dependent on my weight um, but uh, on average uh, on the 747 uh, flap 10 will give you uh, a good bit of margin uh, for safety. And uh, uh, flying around flap 10 uh, means that you're flying at, uh, let me see if I remember, it was 280, 260, 240. So uh, placard speed of, uh, for flap 10, uh, just off the top of my head on the 7.4 is 240 knots. So um, obviously 250 below uh, 10, uh, 240 is way too fast to be flying in the terminal area anyway. Uh, and and when you're coming into land, uh, you you can fly around flat and uh, at, at a flap ten configuration all the way down to about uh, about 200 knots, 210 knots, which is a good comfortable speed to be flying around in the in the TMA. Uh, 767, triple seven, uh, seven five seven, about the same. You know, uh, you, you want to be flying around uh, at uh, w w uh, flap five, uh, which gives you about the same speeds uh, between uh, 220 knots to 200 knots. Uh, usually what I do on the base to final or the final vector to intercept the localizer, I like to be at about 180 knots. That's a good comfortable speed so that you don't overshoot. Um, uh, but that, that was that. Oh, it, that, that, oh bless you. That's, um, <laughs> Thank you, Father. Uh, I'll, I'll mute. You mute no, there. no, you weren't on mute. <laughs> <laughs> but that was uh but that's exactly it. It 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 has to do it has to do with your flap setting. Uh obviously the heavier you are and the cleaner uh configuration you're flying in, the higher uh your uh, your pitch has to be to uh you know to provide uh provide you with the with the lift required to have you uh flying around in that configuration as you start dirting the airplane up or 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 uh, uh, uh extending flaps uh, obviously, the camber of the wing changes, uh, the lift characteristics of the wing changes, and obviously you're able to uh, bring the nose down. Um, but uh, it really depends on, on the aircraft that you're flying, how heavy you are, and the flap setting. So. Yeah, 
I, I would imagine that, you know, what happens here, they're, they're trying to get sequenced in the pattern and they probably had them slow to like 170 knots or something like that. And so, you know, as you said, um, depending on your weight, um, the aircraft has to create a certain amount of lift to stay at level flight. And if you don't put any slats or flap out, um, the angle of attack of the air, the wing is going to have to be pretty high to maintain that level of lift and one of the things that we do uh, some of us do is to you know configure the airplane a little bit change the shape of the wing so that forces or not forces but allows the pitch of the airplane to come down a little bit and not so weird feeling for people in the back feeling like they're dragging their tail on the ground um Mm. and it's also and it it gets to the point where where i mean you can only go so far um with uh, configuring the aircraft as far as flaps concerned um, uh, uh, before you have to put the gear down, because, um, when you go to, uh, when you go to, uh, um, if you want to slow the aircraft down to your minimum approach speed, which is oftentimes what, uh, what, uh, ATC requests, which, uh, you know, the, the, usually they'll, 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 they'll tell you that when you're on the final portion, so you're, you're on the localizer or on the final approach part of your flight into the runway there. Now, the only way to get the aircraft to slow down to your minimum minimum approach speed is to get the uh, the maximum flap setting that you possibly have. And before you can do that, you have to put the landing gear down. Otherwise, you have uh, all sorts of alarms going on uh, off in the cockpit there. So um, it's it's um, if you put the gear down and then you configure the aircraft for a minimum approach speed. Uh, and you're still a ways away from the airport, then that, that might be counterproductive as well. So you kind of, it's, it's a bit of a balancing act there between uh, 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 speed configuration and what portion of the flight you're in or, or your, your approach you're in. Hey, Nick, so. could you add anything without burping um, to that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do apologize. Um, I was just making a comment on the bay because we don't have that uh, problem with putting – Keeping the gear up and having full flap, but um, oh. yeah, we, the we, we our first flap setting only put the leading edge flaps out, so that naturally um, changes um, the angle of attack of the wing and makes the aircraft very nose up. So the main problem we had was that uh, cabin crew would have trouble moving the uh, the carts around because mm-hmm. they're still cleaning up the cabin. And, and trying to push a cart uphill <laughs> to get it to the front galley was quite hard work. If we were staggering around with the nose at like seven degrees nose up, that's, that's pushing it up a hill. Um, so the company used to say, don't just sit there and flap one, go to flap two because it's more comfortable for everybody on board. But, of course, it's more drag, so it's a little more fuel. Um, yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah you, you, you've got to know your airplane, know what it does in each of the – um, flap settings uh, and how much drag you're going to do, how much fuel you got, whether you can afford to drag around the world uh, with heaps of flap out or whatever, or whether you need to try and skim the wing up and keep the, the, the drag low and, and scoot along. Um, yeah, it, it, horses for courses. Uh, if you're a smart pilot, you don't just go by the, the, the standard configuration. You try and think around a problem and go for something that's suitable. Exactly. Steph, uh, in your job of uh, flying skydivers around, do, uh, mm-hmm. does this apply in any way for you? Uh, not in the 
in the same way, you know, I actually apologize because I missed a little bit of Greg's question, so I wasn't sure um, all of it, but I take it it was had to do with the angle on approach and, yeah. and all of that. Um, so for us, a little bit different, um, trying just to be more about efficiency. Um, you know, as soon as uh, jumpers are away, we want to get back to the um, back to pick up the next group as quickly and safely as possible. So that dictates a lot of what the approach looks like. And you try yeah, and, to- and a question a question that we often get uh, is um, usually how far out do you begin to configure? And it really depends. Um, um, in this particular uh, example, when you're when you're when you're approaching, you know, very very congested airports, airfields, uh, you know, um, O'Hare, JFK, Atlanta, LA. Um, oftentimes, it's not really up to you. It's really it's, it's really up to ATC sequencing you in. And, and and assigning you a certain speed, uh, or or you know, oftentimes uh, speed restrictions throughout the arrival procedure um, dictate that based on your weight, you begin to configure early, uh, earlier than you usually would. Um, but um, other times when uh, there isn't really a a speed restriction coming in, either from ATC or the arrival procedure, um, it, it it really depends on the airplane on the seven forty seven. Um, I was able to, you know, comfortably begin configuring the aircraft at about 15 miles out, uh, you know, from clean airplane speed, which at usual landing weights is uh, about 240 knots, 230 knots, and then be stable by a thousand feet. Uh, that means fully configured, uh, set for landing uh, on speed, uh, engines power spooled up, checklist complete. And on the 767, it's about the same, you know, 15 to 12 miles out, uh, you're you're able to comfortably configure the aircraft and be stabilized by a thousand feet. Um, and so um, that's kind of, you know, the, the, the difference there. One is ATC requested uh, speeds or speed restrictions as per the arrival. And the other one is when you really have free reign to do uh, whatever you want as long as you're stabilized by a thousand feet. Yeah, I think in Greg. The, the modern tendency towards uh, constant angle approaches makes that quite hard because uh, you're continually coming down on a effectively a three degree slope from altitude. And uh, the airplane f- finds it very hard to slow up. Uh, the slippery ones, the modern aircraft that are slippery, and I'm assuming that. Um, yours is reasonably slippery, Rick. Um, it, it's fine if you're in level flight. You can get back that speed, uh, you know, um, I don't know uh, what is it, uh, 10 knots a mile I used yep, to 10 knots a mile gauge on. Um, but uh, if once you're in, a, in that constant descent, you've got to start trying to, trying to get the speed back very early because it takes an age. But I'll tell you what, I mean, it's and, and that is a really, really good point. And so... Um, um, Season controllers know that uh, these bigger plants, uh, not only because they're you know obviously very aerodynamic and slippery because they have to be, uh, but also the mass of them trying to slow down a 747 at max landing weight is it's not an easy feat, and so these things will not go down and slow down at the same time. So you got to kind of pick one or the other, and if you get really really good at it. Um, you can kind of do both at the same time, but you do have to reduce your uh, rate of descent and exchange that uh, slight nose-up attitude uh, um, for uh, sacrifice staying on that descent path 
just long enough for you to get to a to your target speed and then at that speed pitch the aircraft back down pitch the nose back down and recapture your path and so another technique and and one that i that i like using the best is not configuring the aircraft based on my distance to the airport but based on my vertical deviation to the glide slope knowing that at average landing weights uh, I will uh, comfortably uh, decelerate the aircraft on the three degree glide using flap 15 at average weights and at heavy landing weights at flap 20 at that at with 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 the wing at flap 20 it's the wing is dirty enough that it produces enough drag to keep the aircraft from accelerating going downhill and um, so that's and another, another technique what Rick just described there pretty well describes what we do because our flying is all visual so it's more about trying to trade that airspeed and and altitude and power and keep things stable and efficient at the same time there you go exactly right Mm -hmm. common denominators yeah but it's hard for you Steph because you've thrown all the cargo overboard well we're very light usually on landing (laughs) 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 exceptionally light because we're only taking enough fuel for (laughs) what we need to yeah, we don't get the throw. You guys are talking about extra board. two tons. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, <laughs> maybe 500 pounds yeah. of fuel. <laughs> All right. Well, great question, Greg. And hope you enjoyed that discussion. I know I did. Um, let's move on. Another quick piece of audio feedback. This one from Gustav. Hello there, APG crew. This is Gustav from Sweden calling in with some voice feedback. Now, I just finished listening to episode uh, 453 about uh, the pilot taking off from um, Bournemouth in a Cessna Citation. And I was just wondering what your opinion is on uh, private pilots, because I presume he was a private pilot since he owned the airplane himself, flying such complicated airplanes by themselves. Um, because I would imagine that uh, it would be rather complicated to 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 run checklists and so forth on a complex airplane by yourself, uh, considering all the systems, uh, jet engines, the speed, and so forth. So I was just wondering what your opinion is on that. And then secondly, I was just uh, wondering, or I've been wondering for a long time now, in a hypothetical situation. If uh, Captain Nick was flying his Airbus A330 over the Atlantic and he started to experience an, a catastrophic a catastrophic fire on board, uh, which would uh, deny him any opportunity to land uh, ashore on, on a runway, and he would be faced with a situation where he would have to ditch the airplane in the ocean, what kind of procedure uh, there was in place for such a situation would you coordinate with uh, a rescue uh, rescue coordination center anywhere would you try to um, land as close as possible to any ships nearby and how would you how would you arrange for that uh, is there anything else you would take into consideration if if if, if you would find yourself in um, in such a such a dire problem or dire, dire situation Anyway, uh, that would be interesting to hear. I hope you guys are doing well, and uh, thanks for all you do. Take care. Thank you, Gustav. Uh, great questions. Um, should we take the last one first? You know, the scenario with Nick out there with the, his big old 
A340-600 on fire? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, with something we actually practiced in the simulator. simulator. Hmm. Um, uh, I practice ditching every now and again. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a possibility. Um, there, there are a number of considerations. You've really got to assess how safe it is to keep the aircraft airborne. Uh, you know, with a with a fire, uh, it, assuming say it's in the cargo hold or in the cabin, you really need to um, think to yourself, well, I can't stay up here at altitude because if the fire gets severe, very severe, then I'm better off ditching the aircraft. Uh, in which case, I want to be close to the water. I don't want to have another ten or fifteen minutes to get down to sea level to throw it on the water. So you're going to start preparing yourself uh, for that situation, get to a, a suitable altitude somewhere in the middle where you can you know, still keep a reasonable range but also be relatively close. You're obviously going to be in contact um, with the emergency um, facilities, either with Gander or with Shamwick or whichever area you're in, and you'll be heading towards the closest um, rescue centre, uh, you, um, you know, it's not much point pointing at Greenland. Uh, there's not a lot there, so you'd either be turning back for Iceland or getting a bit further south down towards uh, uh, Newfoundland, where you know that a rescue is feasible. Um, the chances of being able to coordinate with a, a ship uh, that would be able to give you aid, I think, would be harder. We're probably talking a relatively short time period and getting all the information to you, you plotting a position, trying to see the damn thing, get splashed down close enough to it would be pretty remote. But on the other hand, if you're getting down towards the last few thousand feet and you do see a cruise liner, you're not going to be stupid and fly away from it. Oh, you're going to point at it, and that would be a very sensible thing. Um, there is a very specific drill for ditching the aircraft, uh, and um, you 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 go through it with you know. Uh, it isn't that complicated? You can get through it in a few minutes. Uh, and it, it does involve all the actions you need to try and keep the aircraft afloat so you can get everyone off um, and all the um, settings and drills you need to be able to do so and the attitude etc and as you get close to the water you're going to start looking at the sea state seeing the line of the waves uh, see what the wind is uh, is coming from you can tell that from where the foam is being blown off the top of the waves you're going to try and land along the swell so you don't impact into a big wave that's going to break the aircraft up. Um, and funnily enough, you're not also going to try and hang the aircraft in the air until the stall, the last possible moment, to get it as slow as possible because that'll induce a very high nose attitude. You don't want the aircraft to crash down, uh, particularly a very long aircraft like the 340. Um when the tail hits, because that will could well break open the fuselage, uh, you're going to try and land it in as close as possible to a normal landing attitude uh, that might preserve the integrity of the fuselage. 
Um, you're going to configure the aircraft. I don't think you're going to put the gear down from memory, but I'd have to check the... Uh, no, the, no, no. Gear, gear stays no, up, and then the outflow valve so. stays closed. Uh, and in the Airbus, of course, we've got a very clever switch called the ditching push button, which closes every panel in the belly of the aircraft. So you're effectively turning the bottom half of the aircraft into a boat. As long as you don't damage it too badly, you should stay on the surface. You're going to brief the cabin crew so they can know what's going on. Uh, you're going to run through the, uh, the the brace calls or the emergency calls you're going to make, uh, you know, crew to emergency stations, uh, and then brace, 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 uh, about 20 seconds before you hit the water, and then you're going to put it on the water and hope for the best, and bearing in mind that the cockpit might well be the worst place to be in that situation. You're going to lock your straps. You know, the deceleration is going to be quite hard. Mm. And then uh, from then on, you're in the survival situation. And quite honestly, despite the fact that we used to go through our training every year, uh, the cabin crew were probably the best people to follow because they are the ones that uh, are really well um, practiced in uh, sorting in the, everything out, getting the right equipment, getting the emergency equipment out of the lockers, opening all the doors, getting the rafts out, getting everyone on board. And the last thing I would do as captain was start, you know, trying to step in at that point and run things. You're just going to try and get all the uh, rafts out, get everyone on board. Uh, as the aircraft sank, you're going to separate them and then link all together. You're going to assemble all your, your survival aids and uh, try and uh, get everyone into the mind of survival until uh, someone gets to you and plucks you out of the water. Yeah. And good so luck. Is that, is that, was that what you wanted? <laughs> I went into water, Gabble, there. I do apologize. Wow. I'm impressed. No, but I mean, you, you, hit all the, you hit all the, yeah. all the, all the major points. It's like, I mean, that's exactly right. You need to, you need to try to make the aircraft as, 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 watertight as possible and basically turn it into a boat and uh, that's that's what you do and that is a maneuver that uh, that that we do practice not not often uh, at least uh, in my experience it's not something that we that we do all the time but it uh, it is something that, uh, that that has been thrown at us every once in a while so um, yeah. I think the trickiest part of the whole thing is judging the water conditions or the sea conditions and and trying to account for that and take that into because obviously if you're considering doing that you're dealing with a whole lot of other things at the same time um so i think just in terms of trying to execute it safely and have the best possible outcome that's probably one of the trickier yeah and, and it's it's one of those things where it you know i'm i'm not a uh i'm not, I'm not a sailor you know at all but i i, I do know uh, that uh when when you're looking at uh, white caps you're looking at wind that is at least 15 knots so that's 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 something to keep in mind there and uh, you know kind of you know reading reading the uh your landing or your, your, I guess, landing environment uh, can, can in the end, uh, make the difference between uh, keeping the aircraft intact or as, as intact as, as possible or causing the fuselage to break, uh, making the whole operation, um, you know, for naught. So, um, yeah. Very good. Very thorough, Captain Nick. I feel like I went through uh, recurrent training there. Absolutely. <laughs> you are now signed off. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, and the first his first question was the you know we were talking about that citation jet that had that weird system that the screw came out of and it shorted and exhibited oh, some yeah, really yeah, odd yeah. Uh, 
uh, aerodynamic um, forces on the airplane and uh, the guy was able to maintain control of the airplane and get it on the ground um, in Bournemouth. Um, but his question was, you know, what do we think about, uh, you know, people like single pilots, uh, private single pilots, uh, not single as in single married, but solo, I guess I should say, um, or without a, a co-pilot uh, flying sophisticated airplanes like that? Well, I, my, my feeling is if, uh, if the aircraft is uh, registered or um you know, is permitted mm-hmm. for single pilot operations. The only person you're going to kill is yourself. Uh, yeah. So, you unless you have boots. some passengers on board. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Did he? Uh, okay. No. I. Um, well. Well, I don't know in that situation if he did or not. But yeah, he did. Uh, Liz says that uh, there there were passengers on board. So. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm yeah. with you there, Nick. Mm-hmm. If the aircraft's certified for single pilot operations, yeah. then and, you know, I guess it's it's certified. So yes, yeah. I don't have a problem with it. And and, and the deal with mm-hmm. these oceanic crossings is more of a it's more of a of 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 a um, the equipment on board, uh, the kind of equipment that you have that permits you to to fly um, to uh, across the Atlantic using the North Atlantic track system. Um, so that's that's more of a of of, of an aircraft specific uh, question versus the aircraft being certified or not to fly single pilot so yeah in this case it wasn't an overseas thing it was a over in in europe uh or a uk kind of a incident that occurred okay Uh, i kind of think we go in the area of um should uh a a single pilot be permitted to carry a a number of passengers Mm -hmm. and uh, if it's a private pilot then that's okay uh, if it's a commercial I operation, I think a. Um... <laughs> do you also like to burp? Oh, wait, I need to mute myself first. Thank you. <laughs> there we go. Okay. If, if At least it's a I commercial didn't operation, belch. then I think we need more safeguards. Right, right. Because I mean, because then, then you have, then you're getting, you know, insurance companies involved and all, all sorts of other, of other things. But um, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Probably depends on a variety of factors, as you yeah. all said. I'm sorry. A little bit behind the scenes you get to see there when when the host doesn't mute himself when he's yelling at Liz. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, HR, uh, he's yelling at Liz. Well, I'm not he's yelling. yelling. I'm, I, I kind of yell because the, when mm, I communicate I just, with her. I just keep notes. When I know? communicate oh, okay. with her, I have, it's using the uh, like built-in microphone in my laptop sitting over here. So it's not like I'm using this microphone. Unless I forget to mute it, and then I'm using that microphone too, and you can all hear me. <laughs> uh, give me a break. I have COVID. I think. <laughs> we uh, think you do too. You certainly look you like you have those one. yellow spots on your forehead. Look really bad. Actually, I'm, I'm feeling the the longer we go here, the more normal I'm feeling, which is kind of scary, actually. Yeah, well, let's go for five this hours. Is not normal. <laughs> no, I can tell you do seem a little bit more. Uh, I don't know, energetic. Less yeah, I feel like I got in the second yeah. wind or something. I don't know what what's going like on. It. Must Good. be the drugs. <laughs> the drugs have kicked in. <sighs> All right. Well, thank you, uh, Gustav. Again, great uh, feedback, great questions. Hopefully, we answered them satisfactorily for you. Uh, we had a couple uh, that we didn't get to in today's episode. We did pretty well, though. I, th- I we got more accomplished than I thought we would. And uh, so we're going to move those on to the uh, feedback notebook for the next show. 
And uh, in the meantime, if you're new to the show, welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy uh, community, the APG community, which is really the best part of all this stuff. And uh, if you want to learn more about it and the crew, um, merchandise, coffee fund, plane tales, more details about that stuff. We have the APG library, a calendar, and so much more. Uh, head over to airlinepilotguy.com. And we are also, because, you know, we're, we're modern hip people and we're, you know, we do the social media thing, right? The, the social means, because I say Sometimes. that because, oh, I say that because it's, it sounds cool. You know, it sounds like I'm pretty hip. Social yeah, media. I, I don't do, I don't cool do social are... media at all. No. No, well, never. <laughs> Especially not the Twitter thing or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, have what, you, what, somebody what needs to yeah mm-hmm. tell tell Rick about social media how that all works. We'll, uh, we'll bring him up to the to speed in the twenty first century here. <laughs> you know. So how how would the people listening to this show right now, Steph, if they wanted to follow us on social media, how would they do that? Ah, they have a variety of options. I'm so glad you yeah. asked. Sure. You can head over to Twitter. <laughs> twitter.com we are at apg crew you can find our individual twitter information pinned to the top of the page um so just following some guy miami underscore rick he tweets a lot of things um interesting yeah, heard good stuff <laughs> heard of him uh you could also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy and additionally we are on instagram uh, also at apg crew and if that's not quite enough social media outlets for you there's the added um platform of slack an added feature and uh hillel is the uh, guy that kind of manages that for us so hillel hillel it's time for slack okay but i'm all right um well towel off a little bit here okay go ahead APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right. Well, thank you very much, Hillel, for that. And, oh, we also want to thank our control room extraordinaire producer, director, Liz in Toronto. There we go. Thank you. Wow, you're getting a big round of applause today. (laughs) Wow. Um, So, yeah, she's there doing all kinds of work behind the scenes, trying to keep this whole circus together and <laughs> bless your heart it's definitely a circus you really don't know the, you really don't know the half of it <laughs> well god bless her thank you liz for all the all the help and uh thank you all for joining us if you're with us in the live uh, chat room uh, we really appreciate you hanging out with us every week And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Cheers, y'all. We'll see you next time. Take care. Be good to each other. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. 
I used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine